Welcome back to our growing experiment. We're here with the Burley Farmer, Tom and Dan. So can you guys tell us a little bit about yourselves? You wanna go first, Dano? Sure. Um, I'm Dan. I, uh, I got dragged into this crazy nonsense a couple of years ago by this lovely gentleman here. Um, I didn't do as much research as him. And uh, what we do is we do high intensity urban farming. Uh, I grow tomatoes mainly and peppers and things like that, but I've uh, I learned a lot from this guy here. You? Um, my name's Tom. Uh, grew up in the East Coast, <clears throat> specifically PEI. Um, was more so of a meathead slash tradesperson for a long time. Um, then the excess amounts of cardio led to excess amounts of YouTube. And <laughs> here we are. You know, I learned a lot from YouTube and I put it into practice. And, yeah. you know, six yeah. seasons in. Six seasons in. Fucking hard to You know, now. we're not playing games anymore. So. <laughs> Well, I, I see the connection there from the, the meat heading, right? Because you're concerned about your food when you're lifting weights, right? And you're a meathead, which means you drink. Yes. Yes. <laughs> That's where the beer comes in, right? Yeah. So you got to have you got to have the balance, right? Yeah. Yeah. What are you, what are you guys drinking there? Uh, I'm drinking third place. It's actually a very great beer. It's a... Uh, Who's uh, the brewer? It's uh, Upstreet's, actually. There we go. Okay. Street Brewery. Where, where are they from? Yeah, it's kind of like a uh, mango-ish, fruity beer. It's a very good beer. Used to be a seasonal thing, and now it's yeah. all around. It could have been because we started buying flats of it, too. Probably. Yeah. Probably. <laughs> I uh, actually, like a lot of people don't know this. I haven't said this publicly anywhere before, but I haven't had a drink since April 24th. So I am drinking oh. a non-stout right now. Um, okay. Just kind of a self-challenge to myself to go a year without booze because I drank probably... 10 years worth of booze in the five years we've been yeah. so it was time to just <laughs> they almost go hand in hand way too easy yeah so. it's a little too easy so yeah. yeah well no i know that for sure like for me when i'm uh when i'm gardening in the backyard what i love to do is have a beer and then you're out there trimming tomatoes or whatever whatever you're doing out there you have a beer the sun's shining down you get thirsty, right? Yeah, <laughs> you sure do. And even though the garden hose is there, water's never the option. Yeah. It's never, it doesn't quench right. No. Well, it doesn't have the electrolytes, right? That's right. true. Hey, salt. That's, that's you need the salt. I like that. <laughs> right. So, and you guys are talking about high-intensity urban gardening. So, what's what, what's that mean? So the urban side is using our biggest goal was we don't actually own any of the land we grow food off of right now. We're using unused parts of our town. So lawns that used to be mowed, now we're using them to actually surplus large amounts of food. Um, we didn't start that way uh, right off the hop. We kind of used a small part, but we wanted to kind of learn before we you know, really jumped into it. So we're only on a uh, eighth of an acre right now. We're working up to a quarter, but we grow roughly 7,500 pounds of food. And the high intensity is we rotate our beds as quickly as we can. So we always have a surplus of other uh, plants, seedlings ready to go. And the way that he organizes everything, which is like these crazy charts, is you're never growing the same thing in the same bed twice in a row in that year. You're always surplusing from a root to a lettuce to a legume oh, most of the time, something it. to balance the nitrogen, things like that. So we're trying to get three yields out of our every bed every year. You know, it's not always possible. Like we no. And when we say bed, I guess we're talking the stereotypical Jean Martin Forte thirty inch market garden bed, right? So we um I can I think I can consistently get three rotations yep. typically out of a bed yep. if we have it set up properly. Um but yeah, that's the high intensity part. Like it doesn't stop. 
ever. Like there's no, we're never planting something one day and leaving it. There's always multiple plants to do. Multiple beds to flip, multiple beds to, and you know, even if you're, the, the product isn't fully ready, you're trying to keep on a pace, a schedule. So you maybe give it a couple more days, but you always have seedlings that are just itching to kind of get out of their cell and move on. So you're really trying, like it's as much as you want to crunch the numbers, it's a big number game. It's yeah. literally the way to look at it. Yeah. Um, so Tom got really good at it and that's part of all his knowledge and reading. He just read up on it and he came to my house one day, gave me a beer and a <laughs> joint and we fucking started literally just hashing shit out. And he goes, we can farm this. I was like, I don't know what the fuck you're talking about, but okay. <laughs> yeah. And I was so, like, listen, man, like there's this Curtis Stone guy in BC, man. Like he, he does it. does and, this. You know, we were a $500 seed order yep. and... We went at it. We farmed dirt. That we did. We were year. dirt farmers the first yeah, two years. Yeah, first basically. year we farmed dirt, but yeah. Oh my god, dog. Did, did you have to get permission to use those lands? Like, how did you go about doing that? Um, the land beside you was pretty easy. We yeah. just asked the guy. He wasn't really using it for anything. The spot at the mount, though, where our greenhouse is that we always post about, we pay our rent there and food donations to the seniors' facilities at the mount. So we have a deal. What was it? 600 pounds of tomatoes? 500 pounds yeah. of food a year. Um, and we gave them 250, almost 300 pounds of tomatoes, plus like cucumbers and things like that. And then the main main agreement was originally squash. But instead of working with the landowner, we're working with their kitchen more. So we're trying to provide the kitchen with things that are useful that the people of the residents will actually eat and things like that. So, yeah, it worked really well this year. Uh, going that route, we were able to give them the surplus so they weren't actually wasting anything. Well, that's awesome. Like, that's that's like the perfect kind of like symbiosis right there, right? It's it's how it should be working a lot in this world. Yeah, I it's think. the ideal situation, yeah. really. Especially for, <clears throat> excuse me, we don't, we didn't want to put a lot of money into this getting started. And our goal has always been to not go into debt. <laughs> and we had to scale how much bigger we get every year based on how much money we make. And we haven't gone into debt. And no. this will be our first year Paying running ourselves. like... Yeah, well, well, we'll pay ourselves something yeah. this year for the first time. So, you know, that's ideal. We've just reinvested into the pro- or program, our yeah. company, essentially. Yeah, for the, the past couple of years. The farm's eating all the profits every year in order, in order to get bigger. You we, know? we just get free food out of it come the end. And but, you know, yeah, exactly. We get good free food. So it's really hard to beat. Yeah, and it's learning the process because that's really interesting how you really you're focusing on that kind of that volume there because you were saying like some plants aren't quite ready, but you got the next seedling. So you're focusing on getting that new thing in. So it's it's a volume in a different way kind of thing because with me, we have a greenhouse and the idea was to extend the season. So I have like tomato plants I'm growing over a long period of time, right? Where I'm trying to like get a lot off that single plant, whereas you guys are kind of rotating a series of crops through to get that volume. So Basically. Can you go a little more into what, yeah, how, how you do that, the, the rotation? Uh, that's your field. <laughs> um, okay, essentially, it, it's not rocket science, right? I, I, I found a chart, and I don't have it with me right now, but Jean-Martin Fortier does use a chart in one of his um, presentations he does when he goes visiting around at different farms. And it had the days to maturity of like average varieties of all the crops. And it also had a number that I've never seen before, which was the days in cell. So the days in cell number was the ideal amount of days that let's say your broccoli wants in its cell after it sprouts before it gets hardened and goes out. 
So using those numbers, you can kind of backtrack back. And then once you've progressed your first rotation through your bed. So for example, in one of our beds, we have a full crop of broccoli. It starts April 2nd from seed in the greenhouse. It hardens off May 20th and it goes out on the 1st of June. It's chief broccoli. So it's 65 days to maturity. It's going to be ready the second week of July, roughly. So I know to have a crop ready within that two week gap for when that broccoli is coming out and in situations, cause we've all grown broccoli or maybe you haven't, but we, you know, it doesn't all come ready at once. It's not like beans where you can go and pick it every week or every day. Broccoli is going to give you, you know, 30 foot bed, you got 40 heads. You're going to get 21 week, 20, the other. So ideally those transplants, since we are no till, once the broccoli comes out of the ground or you cut the head out, you cut it down at the base really low and then you start transplanting right where those broccoli leave and you're always filling your bed back up. It's never empty. We never want to see beds with nothing in them or nothing seeded. So that's the goal, like to keep plants churning all the time. We don't have a big window. We have a better window than when we started. We do. We have a 145-day season here, roughly. Good old DEI is it's a very short window. So yeah. You really have to be ready. So we try to be ready to go, like, fields full May 20th on, la on last frost. And we don't stop until the weather makes us, basically, essentially. Basically, yeah. late September, essentially. Yeah, like, we can keep planting until late October. September. And that's another thing. Like, we've never even got into the depths of using, like, row tunnels in order to extend, like, in bed-specific areas. So we're kind of revolving around the first and last frost. So we're successfully doing 16 weeks high rotation um, currently. So if we were to add row tunnels on both ends of those it's not unrealistic for me and dano to be able to push you know 25 weeks of produce out of pei on lawns essentially yes, on lawns it's just a little hard when you have full-time jobs already yeah. and you're doing this on yeah the it's it's yeah, so you were yeah. saying like an extra 10 weeks there so you're that's an extra two months and a half really you're adding on there right kind of yeah if we could keep because you got to think like you get into certain varieties of brassica and certain varieties of spinach some quicker Root varieties vegetables. of carrots, beets, beets, you name it. You could push an easy five extra weeks of a CSA using nothing but those, right? Mm -hmm. And even the greenhouse, we uh, we do vertical tomatoes ourselves. So our greenhouse is only tomatoes and hot peppers. And in uh, we grew our longest tomato this year was eighteen foot six, eighteen foot eight, and the uh, the amount that we got was about seven hundred and fifty two pounds on three hundred and fifty square feet. So we're just slightly over the two pounds per square foot of tomatoes. And it's because we do the whole vertical thing, right? Mm -hmm. It's kind of the same idea as you. You want to use one plant to get as much of a yield as it, you can off of it. Right? And I guess that's it. Like, it's it's not all high rotation. Like, no, we try to put pumpkins down for the fall because it looks nice in the farm stand. We try and do some corn somewhere, even though it's not really worth any money. You know, it's just the things to keep, make sure the stand has everything on it that people come looking for yes, right because exactly. we're, we're we're a farm stand essentially at the end of a driveway and we don't do farmers markets so it's just the stand in a csa so we need people to have a reason to stop by and not have to go to the grocery store and then pick up a few things with us we want them to pick up a few things at the grocery store like go get your soy milk at the grocery store get your vegetables here yeah like <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah
Why did you decide to do just peppers and tomatoes in the greenhouse? Um, for higher yield, basically. Um, the tomatoes, when you have indeterminate tomatoes and you do grow them vertically, the amount of tomatoes you can actually uh, receive off the, the plant is incredible. Um, the bigger plant uh, will produce bigger sets of fruit, larger, larger fruit, things like that. Um, mm -hmm. Set a new record this year. Um, before we did vertical tomatoes outside, and the largest cluster of cherry tomatoes I've ever seen is about 36. This year, I hit 72 cherry tomatoes on one cluster of arms. So it's because your plant gets so big, it can bear that much more fruit. Now, it does have a lot of other factors. Does it have the right water? Did you feed it the proper nutrients? Things like that. So that at the time when it goes to bear that fruit, it can. And those are, you know, sometimes they're freaks too, but it's, <laughs> it's insane how much in such a small, tight area. And that's we also, uh, the whole greenhouse is in full. We took the first uh, 20% of it and we turned it into our seedling house and our little workshop mm -hmm. area. And we host a workshop every year. We try to teach people along the way, try to show them that a salesman and a ex plumber can do, you know, grow your own food as well. Like yeah. we've, we've tried to like inspire people, you know, more That's or less cool. than anything. <laughs> that was the, yeah, yeah. it wasn't just to turn this into a business to show that people can do this. Yeah, I just thought that was cool because that's kind of what we decided to use the dome was just tomatoes and peppers. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, oh, there's something there. <laughs> there is. It's you will get the best yield out of it. Yeah. And you push it an extra month. I don't. Where are you guys from? Where are you at? Ontario. We're Ontario. in Sudbury. You, yeah. you may be a little warmer than us, maybe. But you're in the same kind of idea. You, Because of that greenhouse, you probably get an extra month or two at the end mm -hmm. towards the winter. And, and that, even the beginning. And really. even the beginning. Yeah. That's true, too. Well, yeah, like we got to plant uh, uh, kale and spinach. Yeah, we're going to do some cold crops right now. Yeah, because we already started our pepper seedlings. Like we started the seeds, yeah. I mean. Nice. And then uh, we're going to start the tomatoes soon. Yeah. Because we want to get those kind of in there a little bit earlier too. But yeah, right. uh, yeah and we got a few varieties of them. <clears throat> we, we kind of, uh, I think we got like, what, 20... Yeah, we got 10, 10 different kind or 10 tomato plants and 10 pepper plants. And we got two two of five varieties. Yeah, nice. we didn't want to go fill it up too much because that's an issue we've had before. So we're like, okay, it's so hard to just plant like the 20 seeds. I was like, I want more. But yeah, we did the same thing last year. We had yeah. nine varieties of tomatoes and 31 types of peppers in our greenhouse. Yeah, And that was way too many peppers. Yeah. Way too many peppers. It's, it's nice to having that big variety. And we only do... Super hot peppers, actually. We don't do any bells or any sweets or anything. It's only the really hot peppers that we grow in the greenhouse. Everything else we found grows really good outside. Yeah, the bells grow great outside. So we just leave them out there. But if you're looking for a really prolific green pepper, the King Arthur is a great, a great pepper one. to grow. Yeah. Okay. And so, like, it's like a it's a big growing plant, and then it's, how how big are the peppers on it? And... It's a good size, you know, bell pepper, but like also. Oh, wow. Oh, they're um, monsters. You can't get it monsters. does really well in the late season. Like you're gonna get that mm -hmm. second harvest of peppers off it, which is what you're really looking for when you're extending your pepper season. Like you want to get two, two sets two of bell peppers off, two plants. sets of flowers, two sets of everything yeah. off it. Okay, so peppers will kind of do like almost like two kind of flushes, almost like they'll they'll produce a set and then they'll kind of like. Well, do they veg a little bit or then they just right yeah. away start the next set? 
Exactly. They go right back to their veg. They grow a little bit taller and then they produce flowers again. They try to. They, they try. try their best. So it's, yeah. Right. Um, if we had a couple in the greenhouse, we would get a couple more bell peppers come the end. But like uh, a super hot pepper just takes so long yeah. that like we lost a lot. We tried to grow them in our field, out, out in the field, but the cold almost got to them before a lot of them could finish ripening up. So like we were trying all the tricks, cut them, hang them, leave them on the plant, rip all the leaves off, you name it. And like some of them worked, some of them didn't, but it's nothing like just having it in the greenhouse and then just harvesting. It's also not the same as like a a vine ripened pepper, yes. I guess you could say. Yeah. Like the heat isn't there, the crunch isn't there, yeah. the juice isn't there. Yeah. Like it's not the same when you hang them to finish them. No, it's yeah. not. They're almost soft. And stuff. Yeah. So like with the hot peppers, I'm guessing that's like the long season must be they come from like a really hot climate sort of naturally, right? And that's what you're trying to sort of mirror when you're growing them? Like, is that, is that, that, that's why they need like a long time or how, how long do they take even to kind of run their cycle? Well, our seeds are started now um, and we'll nurse them inside once they come up till May 20th when they go in that greenhouse. Yeah, roughly. And then it will be September before we start cutting any pods off really. Yeah. So you're looking at like 140. They're much longer than our season. It's, yeah, <laughs> it's like 180 days on some of them. Yeah. And I find some peppers dependent on like how extreme or how different they are they take longer um if you get like a cool jalapeno cross you're probably not over 85 days even though you may think you are because it's exotic but it's not the same as when you're dealing with like an apocalypse scorpion or something yeah. you know ridiculously hot like and for the record our peppers are all bred in um <clears throat> the seed is bred in ontario uh, <clears throat> Pepper Merchant. Pepper oh. Merchant. Mike. Mike from the pe Pepper Merchant. Great guy. Great fellow. Yeah, that's cool. We uh, we, we got our seeds from a local person who gets who sources them from uh, all, over, all Canada. over Canada. Yeah, Northern Wildflowers. Nice. Cool. There's yeah. a great big pepper farm in New Brunswick, too. They do nice work, too. Hmm. The, uh, something interesting I learned about hot peppers this last year. Um, it's the cold evenings that actually spice up a pepper. It's the extreme shocks back and forth that end up making a pepper hotter and hotter. So uh, never knew this, but we in Canada can grow hotter hot peppers than most spots because we have such cold evenings coming the end when they need to ripen up. Yeah. Weird, right? So <laughs> the weird yeah. things grow hot peppers down south, right? Like that's how it works. No, it's yeah. they do, but and they can get much bigger plants and higher yields, but they can't get as spicy as ours. Because of that one, well, you you could also get like a bigger disparity in temperature, right? Like, say in the later part of the season, your greenhouse could say get up to twenty degrees, and then depending on how much you let the air in, you could get it down to like five, ten degrees, or whatever you want to do, right? Shock of the plant that gives yeah, that. exactly, and you could you can control that environment a little bit. Exactly, yeah, but yeah, it's kind of cool. I always thought hot or hot climates is how you got super hot peppers. And it's not. It's the shocking of the plant. I guess if you think about it, though, like if you were into somewhere really tropical that was kind of close to a desert, like deserts get fucking cold. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. yeah, if you had true. a hot pepper in a desert climate, it would probably hurt Do the somebody. Same thing. Yeah. Do the exact same thing. Probably all the scorpion names. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, that makes sense, right? Because that's exactly that climate where you're because that. That's that's exactly where you get that huge change where it'll be even like forty above and then it'll be like ten below. Not ten below, but it'd be like you know, it'd be ten degrees or a little less. I think some of the deserts like in Egypt do get down to like almost zero at night. So like Right. 
that'd be wild going from like the sun and the heat down there. To that. Yeah, to zero. Like that would do something to That's you. That's a swing. Yeah. And I'm thinking too, like maybe it's a self defense mechanism for the pepper a little bit. Cause like the pepper wants to propagate its seed, right? Yeah. And so like it's already in a stressful environment. And the more stressed out it gets, the more the plant doesn't think, right? But it's like, oh, I really have to pass on my seeds because this this is like my whole it's job. Pretty, pretty hard to live here, right? Yeah. And if someone comes along and eats me, it's gonna pay for it, right? It's got yeah. that bite to it. Cause you assume that it's gonna get spit out right away and then hopefully the seeds where where the plants already growing, they're gonna to start to grow again, right? Yeah, yeah, that's true though. That's yeah, that's the goal. Like yeah. that's what all of them are trying to do. That's what every vegetable's trying to do. I guess at the end of the day, right? So, um, some things do it quicker than others. So, mm. so why hot peppers? They're fun as hell. They're the coolest looking <laughs> things to grow. I agree. <laughs> I love the look on people's faces when they come because we we've shown it on our Instagram. We have these little baskets that are filled with peppers on our farm stand. And there's always the one that's jammed. The the whole top is full of with super hot peppers. Yeah. And people will come by and be like, can you just walk me through this basket? And I'm like, yeah, let's go down. Let's go for a trip to hell. Come on, let's go. Yeah. And, and they always get a kick out of it. Like, I don't think I want any of these. I'm going to go with jalapenos. It's like, okay, me too. I had fun talking about it. That's all that matters. We, uh, we, we loved eating them too. So yeah. pretty much every Friday we would have a couple beers, get uh, take turns, cheese and crackers and start cutting whatever new hot peppers we had. Yeah. That's, you know, it's nice to really know. Cause then when somebody asks you, you know, what does this taste like? Mm -hmm. There is a certain level though, right? There's like, they don't taste like anything after a million. Yeah. Still, I don't care what anybody says. Just, it just hurts. Yeah. It really does. Just hurt. Some of them are so evil. We, uh, what is it? Chaos chocolate? Is that the one I'm thinking of this year? Yeah. yeah. The one that looked like it was radioactive. So we one, cut it, open. it actually looked kind of good, but then it's like that smell and we all ate it, but it was one of the ones that almost tastes like poison. Like yeah. there's certain ones you have flavor in this and that, but like this one was just toxic. Was yeah. It was toxic. It was, we haven't eaten it. Don't <laughs> eat it again. Probably. It, it's brilliant. that reminds me of uh you ever see that simpsons episode with the five alarm chili and they the, the radioactive pepper they throw it in there and he like coats his mouth in wax to eat it and then they like his stomach like, yeah i don't know you said radioactive pepper that's exactly what it made me think that, of was the that's simpsons. what this one looks like though. It's, like yeah. look up the chaos chocolate it's this brown lumpy Big pepper too. and then you cut it and the inside is lime green and it smells like pure heat when you open it like yeah. it filled a garage it did it, it filled a garage with heat smell so <laughs> does it like burn your eyes even to smell it oh yeah i yeah, wouldn't it put was. it close to my face it's uh like yeah like you you didn't even need to hold it further than like out in front of you and you could smell it yeah like it was insane insane yeah. we have a couple guys that come and uh eat them with us and whatnot one brave soul ate it raw and he done he's like there's no other way to put he almost it. got he, sick outside yeah, he yeah. fucked up yeah so, <laughs> so what, what's the best way to kind of go about a hot pepper then? So like, if you want to have like the full experience, like the, you know, straight whiskey, and then if you want to have the on the rocks experience, and then let's say you want to have the cocktail experience. Okay. So if you want to like class it up, I guess you could say you could do it the way we do, which is basically we get fancy deli meats and, fancy and, nice, cheese. and nice cheeses yeah. and that dulls it down quite a bit. Okay. Yeah. So I guess the straight whiskey, like shooting it back, that's just being a crazy person and eating a full slice of it. We never, ever eat a whole pot. Oh, like no, I feel like a half a pot. It's dangerous as hell. And it's just not fun anymore. Like it's nice to get a little rush 
by hurting yourself. But, but like, yourself. Yeah, I don't want to be pacing the barn trying to keep my stomach contents down, right? So, right. Um, I guess, and then the cocktail version, I would say cook with it would be the cocktail version because they lose their heat once they're simmered down. Maybe not like in a soup, but if you're like frying meat or grilling meat to just put some on top yeah. of it, that would be like the cocktail version where you're just experiencing the spice and some of the flavor. I, uh, I make pepper jelly every year, and that's usually what I do is I'll do a couple of them, and depending on how hot I want, you choose the peppers you want. Um, the other thing, you guys probably know this, but when you do cut a pepper, you want to make sure that if you don't want a lot of heat, don't add any seed or the white middle part, the placenta. Don't add any of that into it. The farther you go up, the hotter it gets, and I mean much hotter. So you'll see even sometimes some peppers say they're you know 300,000 to 800,000. And that also is a varying factor, right? Not just the pepper growing, but when you go to mm. cut that pepper, all the flesh is nice and juicy and tasting at 300,000. As soon as you get to that middle, now you've doubled the heat. Yeah. It's, it's a scary kind of thing. Yeah. Oh, well, that's, that's kind of interesting too. Even when you're thinking when you're cooking with it or how you're going to make what you're going to make out of it, right? Like if you want a little more of the flavor, say in your jelly, you're going to go a little more of the flesh. You want to add a little bit extra heat. Maybe you're going to add a little bit of that enter, that placenta, yeah, right? Yeah, I find a good way sometimes to cook with them, too, is to use them whole instead. Um, and that way, it's easier to get them out. Like, if you're serving it to, like, people with sensitive tastes or stomachs or anything like that, um, just poke a little hole in it and put it on whatever yeah. you're putting on and just let it kind of do its thing. And then you can remove it afterwards. I guess that would be the real cocktail version. It would, yeah. yeah. A lot of people do it with, like, <laughs> it's like the olive and the martini. They do it with, like, soups and whatnot. They'll put it in the soup and they'll never break mm -hmm. it. So they just allow, as long as you don't puncture the skin, you don't get a ton of heat. You still get the flavor from it and a mild amount of spice. Yeah, it but just doesn't take over. It's also, you got to watch that. A million, a million Scoville pepper is still always going to be a million Scoville. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like, uh, you got to pretend it's like not a caged dog still, right? Yeah, exactly. exactly. That's, yeah. yeah, that's a good way to look at it's it. It's everybody we sold them to this year and they come up and some people are like, oh, I want some hot peppers. I can handle it. It's just the... The pure, do not fuck this up. Make yeah. sure you wear gloves. Like, you have yeah. to relay this little, like, three-step procedure. We were debating a Don't waiver. come back yeah. and get mad at us if you touch your eye. Like, you yeah. will be going to the hospital. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I yeah, you touch your eye or you go to the bathroom or something like that, and you're walking around all night crying. And the next day, it's just as dangerous, too. It though. is, yeah. Um, yeah. I, yeah. Messed, I messed it up once. So, the oil is, it's an oil from a pepper, right? So, I chopped right. it all up. I didn't wear a glove. But I've learned to kind of like touch my tongue with my uh, my fingers and just constantly do that a little bit before you scratch anything. And you wash it, wash it, scrub it, doesn't matter. <laughs> but I went to bed one night and I didn't do that. And throughout the night, you know, you scratch your eye. And you're just laying there and you're just like, that's really fucking hot. So for an hour, I had yogurt just in my eye, debating. And be like, take me to the hospital. Like, I don't want to lose my sight tonight. Like, fuck. So it's like you only mess it up once that bad. You yeah. won't ever do it again. Yeah. The safety taste test. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and you said you put yogurt in your eye? Oh, yeah. I opened a whole yogurt and I just sat there with it laying on <laughs> trying to stop it from burning because it was pain. I, it was probably a million, million and a half Scoville. And again, it was oh, just geez. under my nail. Uh, I came And it's, I washed my fingers. I didn't use the brush that time. Just the dumbest thing. But you're asleep. So you scratch your eyes sometimes. You just go to town, right? Yeah, oh, yeah, whatever. And then, yeah. I, it's about 30 seconds. I knew I really fucked up. Like, 
And uh, that makes me think too with the yogurt thing. It's like a little bit of the lactose or the fat that kind of cools down. Like even when you're like when you're eating it, right? You want to cool down your tongue. That's what you do, right? Idea. That's why you use cheeses and things like that. It actually right. Yeah, you said the meat too. I was thinking like the fat and the protein kind of absorbs a little bit of the. It's what is it? Casein or whatever. What's it called? The casein. Casein. I've heard it said capsaicin. Yeah. I don't know how it's said. It's that many Scoville. That's how hot. hot shit. Yeah, it's hot. It's this hot. many yeah. flame bursts. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, and like I gotta wonder too. Like at at some point when you're talking in that higher range too, like. How how much can you deferent like I guess I guess there are different levels of hell, right? Like you're like, oh that's hot. How much hotter could that really be? And then you try it like, well, it gets hotter, right? Well, I think um the hard part is, right, is we're told this number of how hot it is. Me and Dan have no way to actually test how hot it is. And then you factor in like the millions of factors in the growth cycle of the pepper. Did it cross pollinate? Is there anything else? That yeah, got to it? like how is it the correct seed that we were given that actually wasn't cross pollinated? Yeah, so blah, 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 blah. Um, you know, you think of peppers, you know, nine hundred to one point two million Scoville, and then you eat it, and then you're like, okay, that's really fucking hot. But then you try one that's eight hundred thousand Scoville, and how do you know? that you, the one you ate was 900 and not 1.2 million. You don't know. Like, you know, when you, we'll eat a pepper and be like, this one's the hottest one we've had yeah. yet. And then we check it. And it usually turns out to be one of the hottest ones we have. Right. You get used to it. I guess, I guess the answer <laughs> after usually about a half million, it's really hard to kind of defer. Like uh, we have one pepper we grow and you can clearly tell it's like a 400,000 pepper because you can eat it in about 10 minutes. 15 minutes, you're starting to feel normal again. You want to eat another pepper, you're fine. But you eat a million Scoville or something like that. Yeah, you're and going... some of those, some are like uh, scented, almost like a perfume flavor. And then some of them have a juiciness to them. And like those are much more tasty where the other one might burn a little bit more, but they're the exact same heat. So you just end up enjoying this one a little bit more. And then there was that one, Dan, it was only like 875,000 or something, it but it was dry. Remember the oh, one that had, yeah. it, like uh. you bit into it and it was like the juiciness made your throat dry. It took your breath away. Basically. Yeah, it, it was really odd. And I struggled with that pepper, but it wasn't one of the hottest ones we have. So. Yeah, I can remember back home, there was a guy I worked with there and he was super into really hot peppers and it was whatever he could get. He had habaneros, he had ghost peppers, he had cher uh, cherry bombs or cherry something like that maybe, or I don't know. Local cherries. But uh, he, he used to make them into a jelly and spread them on toast. Oh, and yeah. it was like as much as he could get into them, it seemed like he, he loved it. And I don't know how hot those are per se. Like, And he probably wasn't going to be able to grow like uh, some kind of crazy pepper because he didn't have a greenhouse or nothing. But he was growing them in his garden uh, pretty successfully. The well, and that being said, like, um, the pepper merchant he doesn't have a greenhouse either, he's all in bag grows so he can isolate them and they're all out in the open. So yeah. he just starts his hella early, like, hella early. His, his hot pepper plants are bigger than that beer can right now, and it's February in Ontario. So, like, we just don't have the room or the yeah. ability to do that right now, mm -hmm. right? Because you know, you can only have so many seedlings around your house before your wife wants to kick you the fuck out. Yeah. <laughs> Unless your wife wants to have more seedlings, and then you have. You guys are yeah. in a great situation. Yeah, you guys are doing all right. Yeah. yeah. Well, that was the thing, actually, too. We were thinking about starting our tomatoes there early, and they were like, no, we want to kind of like stick to our plan that we have there. We want to kind of put them in on the right time and that kind of thing. Because, like, 
also too for us it's like we want to produce as much as we can but like there's only so much work we kind of want to and can can be able to do in the garden too because like we try to do like as low work as possible but like as high yield as possible too right like trying to run that balance have you ever looked into like the idea of interplanting like just to maximize on some of your space and like to keep yeah. mantra of no work planting. more stuff yeah yeah, yeah we've, we've tried that a little bit with some success um like I, this is our, I guess our fourth year. Third, yeah, I guess. No, we harvested no, our said... asparagus last year, so that was our third year. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, so our fourth year. Already. Yeah, but like, yeah, we're we're still kind of like learning a little bit of stuff, and like, so yeah, some of that worked out better. Like, last year was our first year with our our dome, like our greenhouse, right. and so like that was kind of a learning curve. Like, we killed stuff first, and then the okay. stuff that we killed, it came back in the spring. Cause we just left it and I wanted to see what happened, Smart. but then it was like kind of like stretched out and weird and gangly. Some of, a lot of it we ended up eating anyways, but it was like, it wasn't great. And like if I, I what I should have done was scrapped everything, pulled it all out, threw something new in there. Right. Part of it was like, I wanted to see what happened. Part of it was, I didn't want to kill it after it was like, I already killed them once. Yeah. And then we put in some tomato plants and we killed them with frost kind of for half. And then because they were weakened, aphids got in there and like went to town. Mm -hmm. And then I learned that apparently ants will farm aphids. So I had ants in the dome too. And the ants were helping carry the aphids to the tomato plants <laughs> to just eat the tomato plants. So, and then finally I, I got some kind of like um, organic pesticide that I sprayed on there and it wiped it out. Like I got, I, I think luckily I got it like right on their, like their turnover with their larvae, like when they're going yeah. from egg or whatever. Like I interrupted the cycle properly. Right. How I think big, it was just dumb luck. Go ahead. How big is the dome? 18 feet. 18 but, feet? Shit. Because that's, that's I was going to say, like, if you were to get... Oh, I'll send I'll send you a message once we're done with the show. But I have a list of... I've been working on a list of essentially um, perennial and annual, like, flower and other crops for pest control. And in a situation like that... You'd probably only need like one of every plant, which wouldn't take up very much room in your dome. Where do you even put them in pots? And that then the stuff's there for you already. It's doing stuff. It's bringing good bugs in, right? Um, mm -hmm. And the other thing I was going to say, have you guys looked into getting a praying mantis in that thing? No. We looked a little bit at uh, like maybe ladybugs. ladybugs for the aphids. I would look but, into uh, praying mantis. They're okay. There. Yeah. <laughs> and like you can just get one and then just, I guess they'll just hang out there the whole season. Yeah, you um, essentially what you're buying is an egg sack full of like 500, but they cannibalize each other. And then you get left with one, maybe two, if they can get far enough away from each other, two. But you'll always have one tip, typically at the end. Right. And what was the stat, Daniel? One mantis can do a lot of pest control. Like five. Of... Was it 50 square feet or 500 square feet? Yeah, I think it was 500 square feet. It was a massive amount of it's area. Oh, wow. One of them can cover. Like, and yeah, the dome's 130 or 120 yeah, square like, feet, I think. One. one mantis man, and he'd get rid of a lot of that. And the, the list of the things that he eats is insane. Is insane. Yeah. So he just, that's cool. his job. He just walks around eating all day. Hope to God you don't squish him when you're in there working, yeah, ideally. The, yeah. <laughs> we're talking about a northern mantis, right? Like, it's not, you know, National Geographic here. Like, we're talking something like guy. this that yeah. looks like a piece of straw it's like walking around. like an inch tall, inch and a half tall. Thing. Yeah. Not very big. But we were going to get one for our greenhouse, but unfortunately the bug lady in Nova Scotia, she was out of them last season and we yeah. didn't get any. So, so 
We're making sure we're early this year. I, I'm going to get one this year just to see kinda, if he does improve anything, right? Uh, yeah, I kind of like that idea. I like the Highlander vibe of the Mantis. Like, there can only be one. Yeah. And, and you know they're beheading each other in the same way, too, with their thing, right? They're they're doing – they're giving one of those. They're to boot. It's like Jurassic Park, too. Yeah. Yeah. No, like – yeah, no, I, I like that idea because it's like an integrated uh, pest management kind of idea, right? Exactly. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, no. Yeah, like, uh, I'm looking forward to this year because I feel like we have a kind of a good plan. And I think we kind of underplanted, but I think we did that sort of strategically because we want to see, like, what we can really do for those plants. Gotcha. And then next year we'll know, like, you know, all right, was that the right amount of plants? And we Because we manicured them all the right way and, pro like, you know. Cause that was a thing too. Like I, I found like I was in there cutting tomatoes like all the time. Right. And I was always behind. Yeah. Um, one thing I learned also about tomatoes, you only need four feet of growth on the top of a tomato plant. Everything else can come off. So whenever you're growing them vertically, you only need to keep mm -hmm. the top four feet. That's all it needs to actually produce more tomatoes and keep growing. So we, all, right, we so go pretty, all the bottom. Yeah. We go pretty heavy at them. Whenever we start going, we're usually a foot every time once a week when I start walking in there. And it's okay. I agree. It's a lot. Tomatoes are a lot. Like the trimmings are friggin' something. Do you guys like top them at all in the beginning, or do any kind of like uh... pepper plants will top? So we learned that. Okay. Much. It um, uh, pepper plant has a single growth hormone uh, in the top of the head, and if you top them after they usually have about seven leaves slash nodes coming out of them, the uh, growth hormone goes back down to the root system and then comes back up, and every new head from that point now has a growth hormone. So that's how you produce bigger bunches of peppers and things like that. Now, some of them, whenever the head comes up, it'll skip a bunch of them and it only go like two or three at the top. But then each set of those heads will have its own set of flowers. Now. It's, yeah. It's kind of like lollipop and weed. It is. To be honest. Yeah. And then, okay. Yeah. Pulling them out type yeah. idea, but same idea. Yeah. Well, no, that's kind of funny because like we were talking to a, a gardener there last weekend. We were talking to the uh, last week, rather, the uh, superior gardener. We were talking about how much like kind of like cannabis kind of really actually helped horticulture or like plant, like learning about plants because you had to teach people biology. And so you had to give them that little carrot to dangle in front of them. It's like, listen, I'll teach you science and I'll give you drugs. Fair chain. <laughs> Right. You're going, to, you're going to learn you're going to learn engineering and you're going to learn electricity and you're going to learn biology and chemistry yeah. and you get a drug for it. All right. And then so that, that like, it's kind of a funny thing because you get these sort of like wizards. Right. Yeah. Who are growing for forever and they're growing discreetly to these huge plants yeah. and they're doing it for forever. And then you get these people now where it's legal in Canada and you can grow four plants. Right. Yeah. And if you start a plant early enough and you trim it the right way, you can grow like a gigantic monster plant in your backyard. It's like a Christmas tree. I've seen people with seven foot, seven foot plants. And it's hilarious because like a lot of spots in Charlottetown and PEI, if you want to have those plants outside and you have a seven foot fence around them, or maybe that's Canada. I don't know. Six foot. Pretty yeah. sure it's six foot. But anyway, I've seen people with this tiny little like six by six fence with a door. <laughs> and it's just like a plant. <laughs> half over the top of the fence and you're just like man like what is the point of yeah. that fence like it's not hiding anything the like, rules right yeah. yeah it's like nothing going on here man don't just don't mind yeah mini christmas tree farm yeah. move along yeah i'm 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 a flower enthusiast yeah, yeah exactly yeah these are never a pollinator for my garden yeah there yeah. you go yeah yeah 
Yeah, no, but I, I kind of like how that 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 is because that's the same thing you do with cannabis too. You top it, right? And I guess it must be the same sort of growth hormone thing. And and that being said too, um, with the with the pepper plants, do you do like a lot of trimming with them on the bottom too? Do you worry about the foliage on them as much? Are they a little more finicky? Not much. The biggest reason why a lot of people deal with the foliage is if you don't have proper airflow. Um, tomatoes and pepper plants actually can self-pollinate. You just need to make sure that you shake it around or have good wind flow, right? Or bugs and all that jazz, but um, mm. kind of like a greenhouse, right? Uh, the more that we manipulated our tomato plants, the more we helped pollinate them because you're constantly moving them and shaking them around and cutting their leaves off and things like that. So if you went at them twice a week, you're actually encouraging the pollination rate. Uh, peppers, same idea. We we don't do a lot of work, but we'll open up a couple leaves. Maybe if you got leaves clustered, giant plant, and there's leaves on the inside, well, they're not seeing any sunlight anyway, so they don't actually need to be there. If they can't grab light, then they're not helping the plant anyways, and the plant's putting more growth towards the leaves that are doing nothing for them in the long run. We usually make sure there's, there's room between them, too. Yes. I remember last year we went through, we hacked everybody. Oh, we just, we yeah. kind of bushwhacked everybody there. We put our peppers significantly. Like, we're much like you guys. Like, that was our first year with a massive fucking greenhouse yeah. last year. Like, we crammed it. We crammed it way too far. We had too many everything in there. Too we much everything. We started with 198 tomato plants in there and almost 200 hot peppers. Yeah. So, at oh, the wow. end, we probably lost, let's say, 20 tomatoes and 20 peppers. But we were still almost 400 plants in that little greenhouse yeah. and it's only 40 by it resulted in a lot 40 of feet or 20 feet by 40 feet long like it's yeah. not huge it's big enough though for big enough one before, yeah so that's yeah, true it was a good it's enough to bite off no <laughs> um and one thing we do with our super hots at the end of the year we actually strip almost all the leaves off them and we just let the light and the nutrients go into the pepper so for the last basically three weeks we don't need them to produce any more peppers we just need them to ripen off the peppers they already have so, yes, some of them that aren't fully developed won't finish ripening, but everybody else ripens up much quicker. And so you take, like, all the leaves or, like, all most of the leaves? All of them. Online somewhere there. Yeah. Uh, just a quick clip, but we just strip them. They're stripped. So they're right. almost like a Charlie Brown Christmas tree kind of thing. It literally looks like that. And then all this color, which yeah. is pretty cool because yeah. all the types of hot peppers you'd have and the oh. shapes. And, yeah, it's pretty nifty. But we pulled up 2,000 hot pepper pods out of that greenhouse. Plus, like, all their bells and jalapenos, which would almost be another 2,000. Well, that's another thing we're, we're kind of excited, too, because we also picked a few plants, like, kind of based on their color and that kind of stuff. And we're growing tomatillos for the first time. We've never grown those before. And we're growing a few different varieties of peppers. Some are hotter, but most of them are a little more mild. Yeah. But, like, a little bit of the color, and that's kind of what I look forward to a little bit, too, is, like, all that green. And then after you get, like, some of the yellow, some of the purple, some of the red uh yeah purple red green yeah green yeah yellow we'll have we'll have a few colors in there which i kind of look forward to did you are you doing like a purple bell pepper or anything like that no it's a uh, purple tomatillo actually oh nice oh really cool nice. yes very cool yeah that is I, nice. I don't think we've done one of those no we've never done a tomatillo no, no. they make me too nervous because the ones william dam has they only have the green ones and right. once we put that into the greenhouse, it's like, how the fuck yeah. do you know that that's not just an Why isn't this tomato? never turning red? We'll be putting yeah. tomatoes all season yeah, long. True, we'll be doing yeah, Until our stomachs hurt. <laughs> well, that's what we actually ended up doing. We had a bunch of tomatoes this year towards the end of the season uh, because we ended up having some pests and I got behind on trimming and stuff like that. We had tomatoes that I had to pull that just never got a chance to ripen. Yeah. And that's what we ended up actually doing. We just turned them into like salsa verde kind of thing. Nice. Like it's not a true salsa verde because I think that's technically tomatillos. Yeah. But um, you refer to it as chow. 
Yeah. Is that what it is? Oh yeah, all the all the old people will pull up in their cars, won't even get out, and be like, "You got any green tomatoes?" They're like, "Yeah, it's you know the time of year," and we just yeah. get ten pounds, twenty pounds at a time. That's all they ever do. Ciao, ciao. They love it. Yeah, our last tomato harvest last year was mid November. That's nice. good. That's we would really have, good. We would have been close. That yeah, day. we were about we there. Were close. November seventeenth, I think we were. We finally lost. lost our I think tomato. it was the twenty first for us, so really close. <laughs> Yeah. Nice. Yeah. And you guys got like, did you just kind of push the plant till the bitter end and then just one heavy cold night killed everybody? Pretty much. Yeah. It got like cold in there. Everything pretty much kind of died off. And we went in there and just pulled everything off. Some of it even got a little bit of frost, but yeah, most sure. of it was, was savable. Nice. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think we got a better plan this year. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Like that's kind of the cool thing with the, the, the farming and gardening kind of thing too, right? You kind of plan ahead, you get your new plan. You're like, all right, no, I, I know where I did wrong this year. I know what I'm going to do right now. And then, yeah. And then you can get go like, like what you guys are doing there. That sounds like wild growing that many plants. Like, I mean, I guess we're growing a fair number of plants at the end of the day too. And then the idea is to, I mean, we want to maximize what we can grow just in our backyard. Like last year we planted, uh, 29 different fruit bushes slash fruit trees slash nice. vines and all that kind of stuff. Get ahead so of we're, we're, yeah, we want to grow stuff basically like everywhere in our yard. And we we're fortunate where we have like a decent size kind of suburban backyard. And so we got like uh like kind of this big hill that normally wouldn't be usable, but it's like perfect for putting like bushes and stuff like that. Cause nice. they can tolerate some shade. They can tolerate some poor soil quality and stuff like that. And they're local to the area anyways. So like, you know what I mean? Yeah. They'll grow a nice strong root system. They'll be able to hold yep. on the hill, things like that. Yeah. Um, you ever use or do hascaps? You tried that yet? I, yeah. We have uh, three hascaps we bought. Nice. nice. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. We're They're good uh, for you. We're finally in a location where Tom actually lives now. He has a piece of land that we can start putting permanent things because that's one of the problems with what we were doing. You know, we're showing what we can grow off nothing, but we don't want to be planting peach trees there because then in seven years, we got to lift them up and it's going to be a pain in the ass. <laughs> or we won't. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so now we're just starting that ourselves. We're starting our asparagus. We're, we always had like blueberries. I've been cloning strawberries for the past probably six years now. And I've got about five to 600 strawberry plants we're moving this year. So we oh, open wow. strawberry patch field, things like that. We're kind of... Same idea, get prepared to have everything that we need. But yeah, uh, our seedlings, we learned one lesson about our high intensity purposes um, and the high rotation is you always start an extra tray or two every week, even off the charts, because there might be a crop of lettuce that doesn't come up. There might be a crop of seeds that were carrots or whatever. They all got eaten for some reason, things like that. So instead of then restarting three weeks late, you have another tray that maybe matches the cycle of what you're trying to fit. And that's one of the things we've kind of learned. Um, then we also just surplus anybody else. So anybody around that comes for our workshops and things like that, if we have additional plants, we give them to them, take home, you plant them, yada, yada, yada. So it's never like a loss, essentially. But if you're going to rotate, you always have an extra tray of something yeah. just for no reason, just <laughs> to have that option. There's usually like three or four trays of sit behind green onions at some point yeah. from the end of the season. Once you get into July and you're seeding, it's like, wow, well, yeah, green onions <laughs> or broccoli? Which one is it this week? Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. um, have you guys ever used a soil blocker? I don't know what's that. Uh, it's basically you. Uh, it's a handheld uh, unit and it blocks mm. the soil. It builds like a nice solid block and it just okay. creates 
better starting system for a lot of your big plants, tomatoes, kale, things like that. The blocks, because the uh, air can get at the outside, it naturally aerates the roots. So the root ball becomes that much more dense and tight inside the soil block. It never reaches out looking for anything. It's pretty nifty. We, uh, yeah, we had great success on any of our broccolis, kales, Swiss chard, tomatoes, things like that. Any of that type, we had amazing success with it. So, so like, hold on, like it's like it's a device that like cuts out like a basically a, a square chunk out of the ground, and then that's like fit better to your sort of your seed pot. Making imagine making dirt brownies. It's yeah. like a squeezer okay. that makes dirt brownies that come with a little hole in the top, and then you put your seed in, you plant it, they germinate in that. And now you don't need your like seventy two cell tray. You just need the, the bottom, the part. tight bottom, and you put these in it, and when oh. it's germinating. The roots want to come out the side of the block, but the air prunes them, right? Because as soon as the roots hit the air, right. they fall off, which stresses the plant. In turn, I would say it's a 100% better plug oh, yeah. than yeah. the tray starts. You, you lose a bit of root oh, wow. because the block of dirt's a little bit bigger. So like a 72-cell block, now you can get 36 of them in there. So it halves it basically, right? But right. if you're only needing... 40 broccoli plants for a 30 foot bed thing like it's that that much better the the quality of your seed, like how much harder and bigger it is it's yeah and the germination time everything's the same but it's that yeah. much hardier of a plant going out yeah well it's interesting too because i'm just thinking now because we have a, a 50 cell pot i think it yeah. is and we just planted uh we ended up planting only like 20 right yeah. And doing something like what you're saying, we could have totally sacrificed that space and we would have had a better root system, it sounds like, and a, like a sort of a better start there, right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's neat. Like, there's a little bit of a learning curve to using a cell blocker. It takes a little more time. If you go and you, we get our potting soil, but the one thing we learned is if you want to use a soil blocker, do not use it. holds it. its form? It, it holds its form, but we don't use vermiculite or perlite. We use the all-natural potting soil without either of those. Because just for the soil blocking reasons, it's that much easier. And the, okay. it's basically like building a mud pie. You uh, you add so much water into your tops or into your potting soil, you mix it around until it becomes like uh, tangible, right? And then you start filling the the um, soil blocker. And then how how well does the whole water? Like how often are you got to water your seedlings well, when that's you're doing one that? Of the cool parts too is it holds like it's so moist straight off the hop like you still gotta like give it a little spray but it holds so much water that even come as you like move on you just end up filling a bit of water in the bottom tray and everybody sucks it up and then they just sit there the root system like will then start to hold the the block together do you do you keep uh the hood on there do you keep a hood on there too no. Nope. So you keep it open to the air and then you just kind of you add a little bit of water to the bottom and it all kind of uh absorbs up Exactly. Yeah. That's that's also one thing I've learned too. Once a seedling hits a certain stage, most of the time you want to do bottom watering. The bottom watering encourages the roots to move into the soil. That's so you don't like if you're always spraying on the top, the two things that can happen is the soil or the roots will stay at the top part of the soil looking for that water coming to it. And the uh, you're uh, you're increasing the uh, uh, what do you call it, uh, disease possibilities and things like that by adding water to the leaves if it's not drying properly. So a lot of the mm -hmm. time when you have things inside, that's why, that's why you start to have problems. So if you completely, like, I think it was 10 days after your seedling's a seedling, you're supposed to start bottom water. 
Yeah. There's all these little weird tricks that you're just like, everybody tells you something new every year, right? It's, you're just trying to create your own system that. You got to talk to old gardeners, man. That's oh, where all the well, history and knowledge and everything that we need that we like cruise the internet for. Yeah. A senior citizen fucking has it. So, and if you yeah. can remember it, it's in your best interest. He was so excited about the soil blockers. So we bought this stand upright one. They stand over. It does like 16. From Johnny's. Right it was from, way too expensive. Way too expensive. Right it works great. We still use it. All that jazz. But as we're uh, throughout the year, this older lady was looking for somebody to take some of her uh, late husband's uh, planting stuff. So we just got contacted. It's like, sure. She goes, would you like a soil blocker? And I was like. Yes, I would. I fucking know what that is. And we got this old rusted from 1970 something soil blocker that her husband used for 40 or 50 works years. Better than the and here we thought we're finding something that, you know, is brand new to the world and they're just starting to use it. <laughs> Fuck no. You know, forever. It's, there's yeah. all these old things, right? Old ways of doing it and stuff. And I feel like a lot of that's just kind of coming back into culture. Like it was completely lost for 50 years, essentially. Oh, I think we're losing it now. Yeah. Well, that actually, I think that like you're you're kind of right there. There is a bit of that rediscovery because like um, I'll talk to my grandma sometimes because we we get into this gardening stuff. My grandma always used to have a garden. She had chickens for a period of time and stuff like that. My mom can remember when they'd go like harvest chickens or whatever. There's a story where a chicken stole her watch, and I mean things didn't turn out so well for that chicken. He ended up uh, having a bad day at the end of it. Say but but hey. <laughs> <laughs> but i mean anyways it was like you know like and i go talk to my grandmother and she's like oh yeah like no we used to do that or you know what what you want to do is this and she says oh by the way i've got like four or five books on that no oh, you know if you want to do preserves this is a really great jam recipe and then she's got her notes in the book right yeah. she's like use this one use this one and then like the rest of the recipes don't even worry about it no yeah, yeah. like do this and this skip this but only buy this brand of this because it's the only way it works and yeah. it's just like that hasn't existed in 15 fucking years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, what yeah, are you Grandma, where the hell am I going to get that? Oh, I have some in my cellar. It's like, yeah, exactly. you should throw that out. Don't use that. 15-gallon yeah. tub of whatever it is. <laughs> oh, it doesn't go bad. No. Just take the mold off. Yeah, yeah that's... <laughs> It's well, that's, a, that's a thing to learn, though. Like, because, uh, you know, what we started doing recently, um, Sophia's family's Portuguese. So they like, uh, they'll have like back home, they'll have presunto a lot of the time, right? Or prosciutto, they'll call it. Yeah, or yeah, like yeah. some people just call it like a ham, right? But you'll keep it on like at the counter. I mean, ideally, you want to keep it around, I think, 15 degrees Celsius. And that helps keep it longer. Yeah. But basically, it develops some molds on there. And from a normal sort of modern point of view, you're like, you gross mold, you should throw that out. But actually, a lot of those molds that are on there are keeping away the dangerous molds that will actually kill you. Yep. You scrape those ones off, you just cut them off. The meat underneath that is fine. And as long as you don't dry it out, you just keep eating that meat. And because it's it's cured in a certain way, right, it's it's just like it's kind of it's, it's a different way to learn how to think. And then even Sophia's mother, like she mm -hmm. teaches us all the time, like there's some things where I'm like, I'm not sure if I should eat that. And Anna looks at it and she's like, you can eat that. <laughs> and like, for me, I'm like, you can take that to the bank. If she says you can eat it, you can eat it. In North American culture, we're, we're kind of trained to read the expiration date and, like, throw things out the minute we're on the expiration yeah. date. The reality of the subject is, like, eggs are probably good for three fucking weeks after that date. Sometimes. As long as they don't float. As long as they don't float, like, yeah. crack them and eat them. Like, maybe, yep. you know, if they kind of half float, uh, you don't want to drink them raw. But, like, 
Nate's Tom didn't just say it, but he says it to me all the time. It's best before, not poison after. Right? Yeah. Like that's yeah. The- yeah. And you know, like they may, I remember watching the cartoons as a kid and they like, the dude pours the milk out and it's clumpy. And it's like, well, now we know the milk's rotten. Yeah. Like it probably yeah. wasn't the best before date though. You yeah. know, like, yeah, I don't know. And um, what was the other thing I was listening about? Pheasant. So apparently pheasant doesn't taste its best until it's damn near rotten. So like you're supposed to cook a pheasant, hang it or no. Maybe it's hang it, then cook it. But you're supposed to basically, like, leave it outside till it's just about rotten, and then it's ready to prepare. That's crazy. Like, that blows my mind. I'm not used to that idea. How would you learn that? (laughs) There's only one way to find out, man. (laughs) Yeah. Well, my my guess would be, like, that's one of those things where, like, basically you had a bunch of stuff going on where you didn't get to it or you forgot about it or whatever the case was. There was this one bird that just got left over, and you're like – Ah, I I bet you I could eat that. And then you try it, and you're like, you're like, hey, Jacques, this is pretty fucking good. Come try this. And he's like, dude, that's been I that was sitting there for three weeks. You're, you're at your mind. He's like, no, I swear to God, swear to God, come, come try this. It's delicious. Spe- okay, now that we're on to talking about like eating wildlife, I got to bring this up because I have you guys heard about this Canadian super pig thing? Have you heard about this yet? No, okay. we have pigs. Or like uh, wild pigs or something? In Saskatchewan, in the early 2000s, apparently, doctors in the University of Saskatchewan got together and they had this idea, if we breed a wild boar with a domesticated pork pig, we can get an outdoor pig that'll be ready for slaughter year round. They did it. They made the pigs. Now it's like a 400-pound wild boar. And... The meat was gamey tasting, as would be. It's bred with a boar, so there was no demand for it. The farmers were told to kill these animals. Some of them did not. Some of them let them loose and said, fuck it, it's a wild boar, it'll be fine in the woods. Turns out 20 years later, there's a pack of 120 of these fucking things in Saskatchewan, and they're moving towards the United States in a fucking invasion fashion. To go <laughs> house and home in Montana, and that's not even a joke. They eat everything in their sight, like well, yeah. pigs, yeah. pigs lavish stuff, but right? It's, yeah, it's terrifying. But n- and when- well, I've heard about it in Texas. They're 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 out of control in Texas, where they where like people see them hunting them with choppers, and they're like, "What are you doing? That's insane!" It's like, no, no, no these this is a problem. We're yeah. we're doing a service to the community. The I'm telling you, eating is insane. Google a super Google the Canadian super pig and get a look at this fucking thing. This is not what's in Texas. This is like the the closest thing to a woolly mammoth we're ever going to see in real life. It's a giant ass. <laughs> so, like when you're talking about the wild boar, I'm, I'm guessing it's getting that winter coat. But the thing is, what I understand too, if you get like a regular domesticated pig that we think of, like the pink thing in in the old McDonald's farm, if you let that go in a few years, that turns into something that's pretty wild looking and almost indistinguishable from what it was in the first place yeah you're so right. when the scientist thinks like i'm gonna breed these two things because this is domesticated it's like no that thing is like basically like three generations domesticated yeah. and it will be like that wild boar it'll, now you just let wild boars go is what you did yeah essentially basically. but now they're they're, they're ready big. to be bigger right yeah. that's what you did yeah, yeah they have that super freak yeah. genetic from the the super oh. yeah yeah Anyway, it's a real thing. Canada made it, and I think we should be fucking proud of it. Yeah. <laughs> and we're exporting it to the world whether they want it or not. <laughs> By this time next year, they'll be in Mexico. Yeah. They call it El Grande. 
Yeah. <laughs> El Porco Grande. Oh, uh, fuck. Uh, I got the super pig out in public. That's I love it. fucking great. I love it. <laughs> People need to know about it. Well, that's another thing that Saskatchewan could be a proud of, too. Yeah, yeah. I would be. Yeah. I mean, yeah, they got the Rough Riders and now the the giantest, most vicious pigs in the in all of North America. Well, Rough Riders and the Super Pig in the same conversation. It's a high no, football team. No. Maybe maybe the Rough Riders now will instead be the Super Pigs. Maybe that's, that's what they'll change. Be better mascot, better colors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, seriously, Google a picture of these things. Though they're great. Like I'm really proud he to is. be a Canadian that we have Super Pigs. We, well, because uh, I'm, I'm thinking in my head about like a 400 pound pig. It's it, fucking huge. It's a scary looking pig, man. Like if I was in the woods and that thing came rolling out somewhere, I'd be like, "Whoa!" Or a pack of them. Yeah, or like five of them. <laughs> like, yeah. I get a tree, man. I That's would get up a tree. Stupid. I think I'd be more scared of five super pigs than I would a grizzly. <laughs> I'm not joking, because like a grizzly, like you, it might still be sleepy. Like those pigs super pigs are always. The pigs would eat you faster. The pigs would eat you faster. Yeah, it's they want. There'd to be eat nothing left of you in like an hour. No, yeah. no, yeah, the, yeah, the grizzly's gonna drag you home. Yeah, exactly. And finish you there. Yeah, he'll, yeah, he'll come back, let you age a little bit. You'll dry age on the bone. Then he'll come back. He's like, nah, not quite right. I'm gonna come back. <laughs> the pigs are just gonna, you're gonna be gone. There's gonna be not nothing left. Yeah, and that's the full circle of podcasts. Right? Yeah, it's true yeah, though. Our growing experiment, and I brought up fucking super pigs. See, there it is. There it is. Talk about tomatoes, peppers, and super pigs. Yeah. Super- that's a great side note for when people read the description on the show. Though. Oh my god! <laughs> yeah, it's got a little bit of everything. Yeah. Uh, going back to peppers, I'm just wondering, what about watering? Do they like being watered? We have ours on drip tape. Um, that one, runs one run of drip hose. Runs yeah. what six hours a day in the heat of the summer? Uh, four. Four hours a day in the heat of the summer. We so run. not a lot of water really. We have per tomato plant. Like, what is that like volume wise? Like, how much do you figure they're getting over the day? Poof, I don't know. Like, we, the drip tape, oh, God, that's a lot of math. Uh, yeah, that's, yeah. It's Ooh. only a half-inch drip tape, and it's got a hole every eight inches, and it's only, like, just dripping out. So, I'm going to say, I don't know, big glass of water over the run of the day, maybe. I, I don't say, know. Yeah, like having it, a watering can and maybe. Well, the reason I'm asking is just because, like, I usually can only get a chance to water them, like, once a day. I don't have the drip tape set up. So I'm thinking if I get in there in the morning and I give them, like, you know, I don't want to drown them. But, like, because the one thing I noticed with my peppers is after I kind of neglected them and didn't water them for a while, they actually came back, got way healthier. And then I could give them a little bit more water, and then they were great. You can drown them fairly easily. You can peppers. drown them. Yeah. It will stress them and stuff. We kind of ran into that because the drip hose is just set up in one long fashion, and it's mainly for our tomatoes, but we were using it for our hot peppers as well. But we just had to make sure that one drip hose did, because we do the 30-inch bed, we had two rows of peppers, and that drip hose was sitting in the middle. So basically the peppers could go get the water when they wanted it instead of having it directly on them like we would the tomatoes. Um, but right. you're wrong. Peppers do like, they love two things. They love to go from one to the other, have all their water, dry out, and then go back to being like a nice heavy water. And they like, if you plant them in the ground, they like to be flush in the ground. They like when the water can run by them. So they only need to take what they need. And then, yeah, those are okay. little tricks on peppers. Well, because now I'm thinking what I, what I had, because I created some mounds with the tomatoes I had planted next to my peppers, that's probably why I inadvertently drowned them, right? Because I was kind of 
everything I was watering on my tomato plants that wanted that water, I was drowning out my pepper plants. Yep, that's exactly, yeah. So that, and that will, um, most of the time you'll have flowers fall off. You will have yep. the pepper stunt, things like that. It just won't grow yep. for a couple days type idea. Um, what's the other fucking thing? We are tomato plants, so you're mounding them. Do you remove a bunch of the arms and the little hairs that are coming up the, do you plant the tomatoes deep? Like a good. So, yeah. So what I did was I planted them deep and then I tried mounding them and the mounding didn't work as good as I hoped because basically when I would water them, the mound just eroded. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So then I'm like, next year, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to grow them, take the bottom leaves off, plant them as sort of deep as I can, and then make sure it's nice and flat and then just try not to drown them. That's the way to do it in reality. Um, look up doing a spice mix as well. We've uh, learned we use Epsom salts, earthworm castings, and bone meal. There is a ratio you want for those, but we do a little sprinkle in the hole whenever we put the uh, plants in. And then once they start to bear heavy amounts of fruit, we trench a line down between them and we sprinkle down the line again. This encourages, it gives it everything. It gives the Epsom salts to create a natural defense for blight and other types of diseases for the plants. Your earthworm mm -hmm. castings and bone meal assist in the growth and larger productions of fruit type idea. So it's all these And you do that just at the beginning? We do that. So when you dig your hole with your tomato plant, you have this all mixed together and you just do like your pinching salt type idea, right? Like the salt base. So it's like, it's, like a, it's like a bonus starter kind of mix in the beginning almost? Yeah. And then right. the nutrients are there for when they look for them. They don't right. use them all at the same time. They usually, a plant's growth, it's mainly nitrogen at the beginning. Then you start to go into your phosphorus and potassium. And those are for how much fruit you grow and how big your fruit is. Yeah, it helps with all And then you said later on then too, you're going to do a trench and then you're going to do another feeding of that again. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Usually about halfway through the season, July time. So when they're about to go okay. into full production. Okay. Well, that's, that's something that I think we will take note of too because... That's, that's something too, we've like, I had to learn a little bit more about too. Like I kind of had this idea where like, you didn't really have to fertilize and stuff like that. But once you start fertilizing, like you fertilize, just, just fertilize. Yeah. Do you know what? Um, do you guys grow comfrey anywhere around your area there? No, I don't, I don't like, I've heard of comfrey, I think before, but like, I'm not super familiar with it. It's a perennial. Um, and it basically spreads like a weed. Yeah, it triples in size every year. But the beauty of it is it's a all-purpose natural fertilizer once you cut the leaves off and brew them. Like, you bubble them into a tea for about a, a roughly a week. And it's like an all-purpose fertilizer that can be sprayed, like, foliar-wise. Like, it, you can just spray your whole field down with it. Yeah. It's a really easy way to fertilize. And anything you can grow on your like in your growing space to help feed your growing space is always a win-win yeah so yeah into comfrey maybe you can get a little plant and just get started slowly but it there's nothing to making tea out of it What's like the five things it gives nitrogen potassium phosphorus calcium iron iron, iron. or some copper so, maybe i can't remember it's, but it's a, it's a heavy it's one of the only ones that actually gives you five types of nutrients that you need for your plant and well, that's interesting that it's, it's from a plant source, too, where it has all that source in it. Exactly. Isn't that yeah. cool? And it's the leaves, too. The leaves are, like, rather long, almost like a, an oval-type idea. Yeah. But they it's it grows so well, and it comes back every year. And you can just hack it right down. Well, cool. the super cool thing about that, too, is the nature of it that you're describing is a super fertilizer, and it's a weed. Yeah. So, and like, you vertically hope in a wild environment this plant thrives and is killed a lot. 
Yeah, it is. Because then it's basically it's it's growing out and dropping fertilizer everywhere. It's it's kind of like oh that's that, yeah, no, that's awesome. Like we could probably find some or like that's a that's a good idea, like where we have patches in the backyard that we let grow wild, growing like a comfrey patch that you can cut down and then do a big boil of or something like that, right? Let's add to that little patch, okay? So chrysanthemums, basically, if you get wild chrysanthemum, it kind of looks a little bit like a daisy, I guess. Yeah. The, the yellow flower with the white petals. If you can mm -hmm. get a nice patch of chrysanthemum going, that can be your pesticide. That can be brewed down into a mild pesticide tea. And catnip and things like that. Add all your wildflower stuff around. That's what you grow in a patch like that. Because it gives everything you're looking for to either feed your plant or assist in the plant growth. It's pretty, yeah. Um, another thing, you don't need to make the comfrey into a tea either. You can actually chop it up and do that same idea as what I was talking about, doing the trench and just put it right yeah, in the Yeah, we tested that last year. We're as great. it naturally breaks down, the yeah. plants will... Do you, have to just, do you have to dry it out a little bit? So it, no, like, will it propagate? We just take it and cut and board the knife. We it's can... like we're chopping onions. Yep. We got this big pile of comfrey. Oh, so you chop it like into a mulch. Yeah, yeah basically. Yeah. And then we just... Okay down under it was probably an inch under yeah we just basically run like a quick little hoe on an angle and make a line put it in push the dirt over put Everybody her seedlings over top and Done. see you later yeah i really like that idea of growing like a fertilizer patch because we, we've been recently talking lots about growing pollinator patches and, and, and interspacing pollinators in our growing and stuff too as well as not only is it a pollinator which is beneficial but it also just covers bits of soil because yes. like even the other thing is like the dome i left it kind of open and uncovered over the winter time and actually there's a noticeable amount of soil drop in there yep um like, like it's just that like you wouldn't think but like yeah it kind of turns into dust yeah when you go to rebuild your beds too use any dry leaves things like that add them in mulch them in if you want before you put your compost or topsoil over the top all leaf matter is actually built and designed to be a natural fertilizer for fall plants so that's we, why forest floors are so we, fucking lush. We actually drive around every year in the fall and we just take the bags of leaves that people have piled up in the front lawns and we take them to the mountain. We pile this huge amount of them and then we start putting them in our beds and everything. It's an event. Like we it call, is an event. We call it leaf jacking. Yeah. Like all the people call their leaves up and they leave them all in. You the do curb. all the work for us. I'm going just... around in my minivan, like stealing your bagged up leaves and I make an event out of it. Like yeah. I was debating wearing like a face mask. I know. <laughs> get pulled over for it but i didn't go that far i wasn't willing to go that far do you worry about getting like lots of pine needles in the mix if, if that happens or well you basically you can see what people have kind of raked up so you lift the bags and if the bags aren't super heavy most of the time it's not full of fucking dirt and shit it's just leaves yeah so like you just kind of choose what you want and yes you will have we some spy the trees you'll have some yeah. <laughs> build up but if you keep doing more and more like this way and stuff, you build up such a natural soil that that acidity doesn't matter. Like um, even with your crop rotation, some plants like the acidic soil, like your tomatoes or peppers or things like that, like it more, right, than a root vegetable or anything else. So then even if that one year you grew all the things that you wanted to grow in there that removes the acidity, then the next year grow something else. There's, a, there's a farm in Maine... Um... Oh, shit. I had the name and now it's gone. But anyway, she's essentially a compost farm, but she's also a no-till farm. And um, she's been doing studies into pH. And she's starting to find that once the organic matter in your soil gets above a certain percentage, pH is actually not a factor anymore. So 
all this stuff about we're always worried about like fine tuning our pH for your crops. It may not matter once your soil gets to a point of living ability, I guess is the best way to say. Like once your soil's so mm-hmm. alive, the pH isn't going to matter because there's yeah. enough life in there to keep yeah, that. Yeah, so resilient. Yeah. yeah. So we broad fork, we don't till. We uh, we try not to ever flip the soil over on top of itself. Even when we add our compost, it goes over the top. It never goes down. All the nutrients and everything, every time it rains, your water seeps into the soil anyways. So there's no point burying it somewhere the plant needs to go look for it. It's naturally going to go to the root system or through the plant anyways. The other thing we were doing there for a while, cover cropping. We do lots of cover cropping. So we have keys and things like that. So after we're done harvesting, we will cover crop our beds before the end of the year. We add other types of a nitrogen balancer or something back into the soil and we tarp it so that we then have organic matter we've killed right back into the soil. So we're almost like always building up than ever actually going down anymore. It's uh, our beds, uh, even our lasagna bed. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of lasagna bed where you layer your straws and compost yeah. and oil over and stuff. That's how we did our greenhouse this year. And we probably have the best beds ever by starting that way, instead of even going into the ground. We just went straight up. It's like, uh, wow. I mean, we're, we're, I feel like we're just getting really into it. And I feel like uh, right now we're, we're actually kind of like running out of time because unfortunately we got to go take care of the kids and stuff. But like, I, I feel like I could keep talking to you guys for another hour. Because well, we'll like, uh, like, but, but like, just just even in that last little bit there, that that comfrey tip and growing more fertilizer and and a little bit of that stuff there, that that those are like, like, super practical, easy, like, uh, like great ideas. Do you want well, to keep yeah, talking yeah. if they're available? Yeah, I guess I can talk for a little bit longer. If you guys are available, you guys keep talking. I'm just gonna go put the little guy to bed. Jib jabbing, man. I'll keep jib jabbing. I mean, there was supposed to be a snowstorm here. We were worried about getting Dano home, but I, like, I got about 25 minute drive home, but it's not happening. Not a snowflake so. in not- the ground yet. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah. Well, I guess we'll we'll keep rolling for a little bit. Yeah. 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 So just, yeah. yeah just stop it whenever you guys are done. Then. All right. Oh, God. Well, okay, nice to see you guys. Nice chatting with you. Take care. Yeah, I know we're uh, we're scary men to start talking about plants because we won't shut the fuck up. No, it sounds stupid, but it's like you go to a party and someone's like, "Oh, this is my tomato plant." Don't go tell Dan. Don't yeah. fucking go tell Dan because he won't shut up for an hour. It's uh, don't let him know what's out there. I uh, I never liked growing tomatoes back in the day. Sounds stupid. I never even ate them. And then I my sister started some for me, and I played with it for a year, and I grew all my tomatoes ten feet tall and grew about one hundred and ten pounds of tomatoes. And so I was like, oh, fuck, what else can I do, right? Like, this is, it kind of inspires yeah. you in a different fashion, right? So you learn all the different tricks and all the ins and outs and how you can grow bigger bunches of tomatoes. That's basically my life goal, which is so stupid. But once you get into it, though, it, it is that thing you get excited, right? Like, I know for me, like, this year I feel like I got, like, a, a more of a decent handle on a lot of stuff. There's a lot of ideas I had in the beginning that I think were, like, wrong. But, like, I had it in my head that they were right. Like, I thought, like, you know, you leave the plant alone, do its natural thing, right? And then it, it'll be great. But, no, you got to you gotta cut it down. You got to cut it the right way. You got you to gotta intervene, right? But now I feel like I got kind of, like, a decent decent handle on it a little bit. But uh, It's like chores, too, right? It like, does. And the biggest battle is, like, sorting those out. It's like, okay, at this moment we know we need to tie the broccoli up. 
okay, let's do that. And then you don't know that until you've completely fucking sunburnt your first set of broccoli. And you're like, how can I get around this? Yeah. How can I stop spinach? If we don't cut it, it's going to get tall. And when it gets tall, you can't eat it because it's bolted. Right. So like, you don't know that until you fuck up your first set of spinach plants and they turn into bushes. And that can take days. Yeah. Four, four days you're up in your harvest and all of a sudden everything's bitter. You're just like, well, fuck. Like yeah. you're, it's how you learn. It's, it sounds yeah. stupid, but yes, you fucked it up, but now you learn, you know mm. what not to do. So hopefully yeah. you won't do that one again. Uh, That's exactly it. Like there's so much stuff that like I grew last year too, where like you, and you get ambitious too, and you want to grow a bunch of stuff. Cause I, I grew a bunch of spinach. I had, it was great for a while. And I thought it was a little more heat resistant, but that's exactly what happened. It started to bolt on me. And then basically what you got, you got to cut the whole thing down because otherwise it just continues to bolt and it turns into this giant stock and you can't do anything with it anyways. Yeah, exactly. Well, you could, that's the thing, right? That's the learning curve because if you hadn't known, right, when it bolts, you would have been like, fuck, if I wait this thing out for six more weeks, I'll have all my spinach seed for next season. You can take your own spinach seed and you've got the... uh, Right, you you've got the uh, what do you call it? The genetics of your growing season, how it grows, where it grows, what you're putting it in, in that seed code, which is awesome, right? Like that's how you get better plants. Maybe next year, if you use those seeds, it won't bolt as quick. Things like that. It's um, so back. So like back spinach to- there. Sorry, sorry, just uh, spinach there. I, I thought it was biennial. It's not biennial. All you have to do is get it to bolt. So you just got to stress it. You got to let it go for a while, though. I got spinach seed once, and it took the entire season to get it. But you will get it. Um, Kale is biennial, so you have to let it basically go all year, almost die. The winter is what shocks it. And then you let it come back the next year, and it will flower. And then those flowers, you wait that season for its little pods to produce and then you get seeds from the pods we did it it we was a long time, time yeah. but now we've got our own kale seed that's in our climate zone and actually you know grown in our climate zone so we're going to try them this year and do the same idea we'll do maybe five plants we'll put them somewhere and they are uh going to never be harvested we're just going to let them grow all the way through their cycle for two years and take make sure seed it's worth again, it and then take it's worth seed. it yeah, yeah. So all the like we're we should be playing with some pepper seed and tomato seeds and things like that, trying to get our own seed because in the long run we would get better, healthier, bigger bunches of fruit because we're creating the uh, the seed in our climate. It's learning how to grow how we grow. So well, no, that's another thing I thought of too because one what we do we do keep a, a a bunch of our seeds. We don't keep all of our seeds yet. And there's some things that we haven't like, uh, so like another change that we made this year for our garden, because we're doing mostly just growing for the family. Yeah. We started thinking like, you know, what do we eat? Right. So like, really we want to eat like a lot of potatoes, a lot of root vegetable things, garlic, onions, that kind of thing, carrot, whatever. Right. So that's what we're trying to focus on growing a lot more now. But like, that's, that's kind of the, the learning of it. Right. So like, and then figuring out how do you get seeds out of that, right? Because, like, say a potato, as far like, the only way I know how to grow potatoes is you get, like, a little set potato or you cut, like, a potato that's got eyes growing on it and you throw that in the garden. But, like, you know, that's, like, a thing where I'm thinking, like, oh, do do potatoes make seeds? Are they, like, a biennial? No, uh, you know? that's how they do it, actually. They will never reproduce a seed. You So is that, like, budding or what do you call that? Um, um, slips is what it's called in sweet potatoes. So, so if you grow a sweet potato, like 
we're about to do it here probably next week. I'm going to go Never buy. done it before. So no, this is our first year. So we're going to go buy a bunch of organic sweet potato. And, and they're perennial, right? Uh, no. No, they're one-shot wonder. One-shot. But they will store to basically... I'm trying to treat the sweet potato the way we treat our garlic. So we bought garlic five years ago. We've never bought garlic again because yeah. we've always saved enough seed. We save half our seed every year. So this year we have planted. 900 garlic planted already. So we're going to do that again. Yeah. yeah. Holy shit. Our goal That's is what I was wondering too. Because like like you take that one little clove, I guess, that turns into like a head. And then hopefully yeah. you get however many off your head. And then so, so I, I interrupted you. Sorry. So... But we'll put a pin in that garlic thing. I want to come back to that, but keep going with what you're saying there. Because I want to talk more about growing garlic because I suck at growing garlic right now. Um, okay, so I want to treat the sweet potato like garlic, I guess. So we are going to make an investment in sweet potato this year. Slip the sweet potato. So essentially all we're going to do is bury it. Um, so it's just covered in enough dirt to cover it. We're going to leave it in the dark until it forms eyes. They come out of the soil. Then we'll put it under the grow light. We're going to cultivate yeah, we're going to cultivate those slips. One sweet potato should give us three to six slips. Um, we'll let those get six inches tall, and then they're going to spend two weeks in a cup of water. And the slip is right at the top of a – it'll look like a long vine. Coming out of a potato. Okay. Yeah. That's a okay. slip. So you cut it with a piece of the sweet potato still attached. And then you put it in the cup of water. Okay. Two weeks. It puts roots out, and then, and then we'll the plant that out uh, June 1st, hopefully. It's a full and then that will send down further roots that will turn into the sweet potatoes. Turn into tubers, give us more sweet potatoes, and then hopefully <laughs> if – you say? It can grow up to 20 pounds of sweet potato? Yeah, we can get 20 pounds of sweet potato. Per, per, per slip. Per yeah. slip, per plant. Like you get like six oh, wow. sweet potatoes. What is that like yield versus like a regular potato? That sounds like pretty heavy. Well, you got to think too. A sweet it's potato's longer. much bigger than a normal potato, too, and right? much longer. It grows a lot longer, and even the slip that comes off of it, that slip and vine can grow up to seven, eight feet long. So it actually what, seven, seven zero. Yeah, no, no, no seven, 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 seven to eight feet long. Yeah. Seven. Okay, seven to eight. I thought you said seven. You're like Jesus Christ, you're growing a Jumanji plant in your backyard. <laughs> we will be back on the news. Yeah. You're gonna have Robin Williams running through your backyard chasing tigers. Yeah, exactly. There's another job. Yeah, right. Chasing tigers through the Jumanji uh, Garden. Shit. Yeah, right. Yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah. Uh, no, but that's crazy though. I mean, like off, off a slip like that, and you said you're getting three slips off of a cut like that, right? Yeah, one one potato, hopefully. Yeah. So, for example, we're doing. Uh, I have planted two thirty foot beds of sweet potato. They're planted sixteen inches apart, so we're looking at we need twenty to twenty five slips a bed, roughly. Yeah. Um. So that's going to work out to. I'm going to probably buy 10 or 15 sweet potatoes and hope to get enough slips off. Our goal is for that 30-foot bed to have anywhere from three to 400 pounds of uh, sweet potato. We're hoping. Bed. We're hoping. Well, so like, say, so say that again then. You're starting with 10 potatoes? 15 potatoes. 15 potatoes you're going to start with, and you're hoping to get 200 pounds? We're hoping to get three to five slips per potato. Right. Flip can produce a plant that could produce up to 20 to 25 pounds of potato. Right. So, And in a bed, you'll have about 20 to 25 slips or plants. So we're hoping for okay. 400 pounds of sweet potato in a 35-foot bed. Yeah. Damn. Yeah. Yeah. If the math works out, I mean, I'm just going based off the math I can research. And that's, and that's it. So it's all about math. But even if you get half of that, even if we're only pulling yeah. 150, 200 pounds sweet of potato sweet potato goes for good money bed. at the market stand, yeah. right? 
It's well, because like I'm thinking for me and my family, right? Like for a year, right? A hundred to two hundred pounds of potatoes is really all I need, right? So I don't, I don't really need, because like, that's the thing I've been trying to figure out. I've been thinking about doing potato towers. I've been thinking about doing different variations of these. I'm trying to maximize space and grow potatoes. I hadn't considered sweet potatoes, but that might be another route because I'm looking for like your 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 starch, right? I've got an idea for you. I did potatoes in a broken garbage can. So I broken uh, broke open the soil and I put the broken part of the garbage can as deep as I can into the soil. And then you put your potatoes in. Once your potatoes grown up so many inches, you can rebury so much of it. And every time you rebury it, it gives another spot where it can start to grow potatoes. So you literally grow your potatoes in this giant garbage can. And every time you rebury it, it adds another area where it can grow another set of potatoes. So you let okay. it. Yeah, there's, there's a, there was this one. Like a, that's like a tower. Like I, I was kind of thinking, well, I'll, I'll say we're doing something similar with like a str uh, straw and dirt and stuff yeah, like that. Exactly. Yeah. Same, same concept. I, I try to repurpose as much broken things or unused yeah. things, things like that as I can. And then uh, there was two or three years ago, I had three garbage cans and I got about 70 pounds of potatoes out of the three of them. So it was enough. Yeah. It was enough to like feed my family and keep around and things like that. So the yeah. only thing was well, yeah, that's that's wow. Yeah, so Go ahead. potatoes. The only difference, I guess, would be they keep a little better than normal potatoes, and you it's if better. you keep them well enough, you won't need to buy sweet potatoes to slip next, next year. year. Yeah. Right. Then you could use your tail end of your harvest to recut and go again. Yeah. And anything ideally you plan for too, right? Because you always want to over harvest too. Exactly. Totally. Yeah. yeah. You always want stuff left over. You always want extras. So anything you can buy once and never hopefully need to buy again, yeah. that's, that's what you got to be doing. Right. Yeah. Well, that's another thing that we did recently too. Like this, this year, I feel like we've been doing a lot of house investments, but one of the things that we did in the last say six months is we built a cold room. Right. Uh, and so all we did is we basically, we have a basement. So we basically uh, picked a room that was on an outside wall and insulated the interior walls to it and bared open the wall that was to the outside. And so it lets the cold inside. And so basically you have a refrigerator for free and because yeah. it's insulated there, it doesn't get cold in the rest of the house. Yeah. And now I can keep my potatoes in there, my garlic in there, my onions in there, my wine in there. You know what I mean? Yeah. You need, right? That's a great yeah. idea. That is, yeah. That's well, and that's what we had to do because, like, we want to grow the potatoes. And, and that's that's the thing we consider, too, when we pick crops now is we want to think, like, you know, what stores the best and that kind of thing. Because that's that's what we're trying to think about doing is we're, we're, we're trying to grow for the year, right? Yeah. Um, your garlic. Bring up the garlic. Why, right, the garlic, yeah. Why are you having a hard time growing garlic? Well, so I, I feel like a lot of times I plant it next to things that want too much water. And I feel like maybe I drown my garlic because they always turn out kind of, like, small in the end and – not great. Water. Do you ever have them rotting and stuff? We found out you do not want to water your garlic. Okay, so you want to like kind of like like neglect it almost. Leave it, leave it, leave it out there. The straw or the wood chips or whatever you're mulching over it. Yeah, like don't water it at all. Okay, well there's a start. So when you you want to have like four to six inches of straw over your garlic all winter, all winter, leave it there. It'll sprout up through. And every time it rains, that mulch is going to hold all the water the garlic needs. Yeah. Right. So you're going to get the melt from the snow on top of there over from the overwinter. And yeah. then from there, you're going to get the rain. And that, that's really enough. So really, you just you plant it and you leave it. 
pretty yeah. much. Go and weed it. Like, make sure there's no weed pressure. Yeah. But, like, but, yeah. yeah, you don't need to worry about irrigating and garlic. And another thing, too, Google, because garlic is actually poisonous to a lot of the plants. There's a lot of plants that it will not grow next to and or vice versa. Plant will not grow next to it. It's, well, it's I know we've Googled, we've Googled companion planting to make sure we planted it next to like preferential plants. And yeah. So we, we had that going, but I think the thing we had was usually it was next to a more thirsty plant. And yeah. that's what I think it was, is we were watering it too much. Because I think we had a similar problem with our onions. Have you guys grown onions at all? We tried bulb onions last year. The bulbs yeah. weren't great quality that no. we got, in fairness. Um, we're going to try from seed this year because our friend Rebecca down in the States, she has really great success with growing her onions from seed as opposed to bulb. Um, she says they're a lot more dependable. So we're going to give it a shot, see what happens. Um, again, the issue is with us, we're operating on limited space. So some crops just don't bring enough money to the farm stand to put right. that kind of investment yeah. in. Like onions aren't quick. Green onions, they're quicker, but bulb onions aren't quick we whatsoever. We did find out though that onion actually plants really well and is a companion plant for peppers. So if you have a permanent row of peppers somewhere, you can run the onion, you know, about eight, 10 inches right next to the root system in the same bed. So that's why we do our 30 inch beds, right? Because mm -hmm. we have so many different companion planting, interplanting, things like that we do as well as our uh, full rotations. And that's, well, yeah. that, that, that's making me think that maybe I could reconsider planting my onions in my dome next to my pepper plants because I'm, I kind of planted them a little more sparingly with space. And if I have more of that space, because generally, I mean, onions, they're not throwing up big foliage, right? They're, you know, and if I plant them in next to like uh, peppers or onions, and if I trim the bottoms off there, I'll get enough light in there anyways. So that might be actually a good idea to get more onions out of what I'm doing. The uh, the other thing we're trying this year, because he looked it up, there's a guy that grows his onion and he puts three of them together, like a little like. It's a little triangle. And they push. Like three seeds, you mean? Three bulbs, three I guess. Three bulbs. And okay very close so as they grow they actually push off each other which increases the growth it's so they're, just they're something like, else we've seen and they're like mutually tested. stressing each other yeah we have right yeah because but. they're planted too close to each other but they have the room on the outside to grow so they have out. somewhere to push so they're right. fighting each other all season for space but they have the space it's like you're you're kind of yeah they got the, the flat side and they push out the bulb on the outside exactly yeah exactly so yeah. that's how we're going to go about planting them this year in order to try and, again, maximize we usually, on We it. usually try a couple systems and things like that and see which one at the end actually produces the highest, you know, per square yeah. uh, foot poundage. That is our biggest goal, right, is when we look at things, we're not just looking at the money and the yield, but the amount of per square foot, what did we get out? And that's how we can continue to do such high volumes. Well, that's the really big thing, especially when you're dealing with limited space. And like that's that's a cool thing that I like when we talk to a superior gardener, too. She mentioned she tries to plant by like a square foot sort of idea, right? She's like, what can I jam into a square foot? Yep. And then go from just that one unit and then go to the rest of your garden, right? Yep. And the cool thing about that is that one small unit, you can put one of those here, there. It's a Lego block now, right? Yeah. And like... Yep. And that it makes it kind of modular, and that like that's the kind of cool thing that I like about uh, gardening. As I start to learn more about it, is is once you start to understand certain basic principles, you can, and especially when it comes to like organization and your planning and your sort of how you're going to lay stuff out, you can kind of you can plug and play these sort of different systems with each other and see see what yeah. works, right? 
not nearly as rigid as our grandmothers all taught us. Like you gotta no, leave not. a foot and a half between each row, and like don't go near that. Single you, lines. Yeah, no. it's not nearly as rigid as they uh, made it sound. Right? We um, have you ever looked into the actual square foot method, like Elliot Coleman's? No, I've never looked into it. We talked to her about it, and I like the idea. I I, I think um my that would be probably my project for this year going to next year for planning because like i kind of made a plan and i'm bad about like switching plans when i hear new cool ideas so i'm like i'm sticking to the plan i got this year which is like a little more basic yeah. but i think like something more like that where i'm gonna start really trying to maximize square footage again that'll be like this year's learning into next year's planting project but so really what, was that, what was the author you mentioned uh, Elliot Coleman, he's like the granddaddy of market gardening. Like Jean-Martin Forche wouldn't exist without Elliot Coleman because his system is based off of his. So okay. um, essentially the rule of thumb is, is you fit six small plants in a square foot. Four, um, four small plants, two medium. Yeah. Yeah. Four, yeah. Well, no, because spinach you can fit six. So there's got to be a bend oh, in that rule somewhere. five beds at 30 inches. That's five Square foot, square foot. Anyway, it's like four, two, and one. It's not overly complicated, yeah. um, and it, it works every time. Yeah, it's pretty great. much. It's like yeah. four small plants, two medium, one large is your square foot, and that's how you kind of. Yeah. And that's how we get forty-five broccoli plants in a thirty-inch bed yeah. that's only thirty feet long. Yeah. Well, because like, and hearing that too, like, I'm thinking because like I've I've kind of i've tried to do like uh triangle sort of patterns and stuff like that where i end up leaving a lot of space in between and i hear about how much yield you're getting out of like that small of a space and i'm like ah, i feel like i gotta plant more stuff in and i gotta i really gotta learn that because i have fairly good sized beds like i have um i have a six by twelve bed a six by twelve bed uh a six by eight bed I have a four by 10 and then I have another sort of odd shaped kidney bed. And like, like that's not like, that's a lot of real estate. And if I kind of learn how to maximize that growing enough for me is, is really not going to be an issue. I just really got to drill in on, on, on the particulars. One of your beds into the 30 inches and then a 10 inch walkway and then a 30 inch and just play with it. Test what you can get in there. See how many plants you can fit in beans and all that jazz it's there's a few books like if you were to read some of like have you ever read the market gardener by jean-martin fortier or any of those like no no i've, I've heard a couple of those uh i've i've uh i've looked in, into a couple of those things and then uh i kind of like found found a certain sort of style and then i started talking mostly just to regular people so this this is the new thing i'm hearing we're off to get back into learning again i guess what what i would recommend is like maybe look at because that's where our system comes from is like a large market garden system. Basically, yeah. But it's very easily scaled down to the size in which you're trying to grow to, right? Like all it gave us is like how many rows of this fits in the bed. And this is why it's 30 inches. Now, if you go and look at your beds and pick out 30 inch spaces, you'll know, mm -hmm. okay, that may only be two feet long, but I can still fit five deep of spinach rows through there in that two feet. And all you do is space that planting out by two weeks. And now you have spinach for two weeks out of 30 inches by two feet. Yeah, no, that, that's, yeah, that, that, that's what I got to do. <laughs> You'd get basically five plants in your width. And then every square foot you're moving forward, you're getting another five plants, five plants, five plants. Yeah. So it's, 
it becomes, you know, when you're going, you're cutting 10 to 15 spinach plants every week, you actually get a good yield. Yeah. And then even yeah. when you start to like die out, if you know that you're about to cut or remove those plants in, let's say four weeks, you start bean plants. So your beans are already four weeks ahead. So when the spinach comes out, the bean seedlings are, you know, you already skipped four weeks of the cycle. So you definitely will get a yield of beans, if not something else afterwards. It's all about having something to replace it as well. And that's just your rotations become crazy. Um, yeah, that, that was something I tried uh, last year there that uh, I made it was the second time I did it, where I did a rotation where I had peas going in after or before beans and then my peas going in after that. And I had uh, peas going in late too. And then I kind of scattered them throughout the yard too, just to see if they would yeah. go anywhere else. One thing we're trying this year, they do it um, at a couple farms we we follow. They do fall tomatoes. So um, once the garlic comes out, they'll have a determinant. Typically, the pole big tomato is what they tend to do this with. Um, it's like a medium-sized beefsteak tomato on a determinant plant. Um, okay. They'll have like a one-and-a-half to two-foot-tall tomato plant ready to go once the garlic leaves, like mid-July. And they'll plant the tomato in there, and that gives it just enough time to put out some fair-sized, big, ripe um, beefsteak tomatoes by the end of September if you get the weather. Um, because we all know once your garlic comes out, it's kind of an awkward time, time frame. Yeah. Like, you're the mid of July, mm -hmm. end of July. You need something that's going to come fairly quickly that you don't have to do a lot of work to the bed to get going. And with the mulch left over from your garlic, it's perfect to keep your tomatoes because what I learned this year is determinate beefsteak tomatoes, a lot of those varieties are drought tolerant. So if you have the mulched bed from the garlic holding the moisture in the soil, and then you throw a drought tolerant tomato in there, it's going to take off like wildfire, right? Because it's getting, it's moist all the time from the straw, but it's not getting big drinks that'll shock it. So I don't know. It's a neat idea. We're going to try it. Switching the big thing too is you're going from a root vegetable to a fruit. So as long as you're not rotating root. Oh, thank you. Path, right? How'd you know? The kids went to bed and she's back. <laughs> uh, look, I'm back. That's something to know about uh, beans or peas or anything like that. Well, no, not peas, but beans. Mainly beans. Beans and peas are the same. They're both legumes. Beans are actually a nitrogen balancer. So they will balance the nitrogen in the soil. So if you ever have like hair, carrots or anything that has like a root that has hair on it, that's because the nitrogen's all wonky. Uh, a bean plant, when you put that in the ground, it forms little nodes on the end of its uh, uh, root system. And those mm -hmm. nodes are pure nitrogen that is actually dissolvable by any other type of plant looking for. It. So when you do a rotation of beans, you're actually balancing your soil again. Um, all our plants, when we go and we cut our plants, I think Tom said this earlier, we go down about an inch, half inch of the soil, and we leave the root mm. system always of every plant that we cut out. It's a natural uh, peat moss, aeration, and anything else that's left in the plant will then leach back into the soil. It's kind well, of... Well, and that nitrogen you want, too, for that next foliage or that next crop, right? Because that's that's where you want the nitrogen-heavy parts. Exactly, to grow the plant that much quicker and better. And again, yeah. because the bean has it in those little nodes, it's dissolvable by any other plant looking for it. It's a cool little weird feature that a lot of people don't really know. I just learned it about beans last year. Because that's, that's, that's the old fact. verbiage. The old verbiage is your best carrots come after your first beans. Yeah. Okay. And it worked. Well, that makes sense. It worked great. It worked great. So. And most of the plotting he would do is anything that finished carrots this year starts beans. So we're 
balancing it back again before we go. Yeah. 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 No, it's, uh, I just, I, I love the harmony of how it all kind of comes together once you start getting it. It's like, there's something, it's, 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 the, I uh, want to call it art. Like it's, it's, there's something the beautiful lines, about it. Right? Well, it is. I mean, you, you kind of like, you kind of have to commit to it. Like even, so this year we have to go to the States cause my sister's getting married and we have to go to the wedding and all that kind of thing. And like, we have this whole garden plan and I'm like, well, now I'm not going to be here for a couple of weeks. And that's a little bit stressful. Like, I mean, we'll put someone here and they'll water it, but I'm like, we got this thing we're doing. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Can you go and like prune every second pepper leaf off? Like, yeah. I know it's <laughs> yeah. I'm trying. Yeah, and then I want this many parts of this uh, fertilizer and this many parts of this fertilizer, and I want that on every second day. I'm gonna yeah. leave on every second row. Spice mix and like here's how to make comfrey tea. So yeah. like, please do those things. Don't while drink I'm gone. it. Don't yeah. drink it. Yeah. <laughs> it's not real tea. Uh, yeah. And keep the dog out of the garden. For God's yeah. sake. Oh my God. <laughs> It's uh, we both have a dog, and it's uh, it took a lot of years before my dog started walking the paths of my garden. Oh, like four. Probably. This this guy's too dumb. To yeah, and Brutus, God love him. He's a big, He's... big monster man. He just tramples things. <laughs> we we put up fences, and where the fences are, she's pretty good about. But then we took them down, and now the winter. The problem is, she goes and walks on the frozen beds. Yeah. So it's like a bad habit right now. She's like, why can't I walk on this now? I could walk on it three months ago. What's the difference? Exactly. Yeah, it was yeah. it was green at one time and I couldn't touch it, and it was white and I can, and now I get to be smart and go. Okay, you gotta go. You gotta very go. nice to see you guys. Meet you guys. In All right. Just I'll get home before the storm actually hits. If yeah. It fucking good hits. plan. It but, is. Well, drive safe. Take care. Thank you very much for having us. Or yeah. having Thank you very much for talking to us. Yeah. Take care. All right, bud. All right, man. We'll see you Saturday, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah you guys, you guys have a crazy amount of knowledge. I mean. uh it's it's great it's great talking to you guys like I mean uh, it's yeah no it and I, I love I love that like I find there is a lot of people kind of getting into this um let, let me ask this question also too how old are you I'm uh shit I'm 34 in June okay 34 I feel like there's like probably between 30 and 40 to maybe 50 is like uh, well that's a pretty long range but 30 yeah. to 40 especially no but 30 to 40 especially I feel like there's a lot of people that are roughly our I'd age say younger. I yeah. Start at like maybe twenty five. I, I, I disagree with the twenty five. To be honest, yeah. With you. I feel I, like... I think there's a lot of people thirty and thirty to forty who are getting really interested in this because I think they're having families. They're they're reconsidering a lot of ways of life and stuff like that. Because I, I think when you start having kids and stuff, you start after thinking a little more practically about some things. I think a lot of it has to do with um, the unfortunate thing too is is like. The economy in Canada isn't particularly awesome right now. And I think food instability is a giant fucking issue that a lot of people yes. aren't really talking about enough, I guess I'll say. Yes. Um, I think I read the stat, like, it's almost 20% of Canadians don't have enough money to keep their fridge with enough food to maintain their, their household right now. So if you could take you know, a little bit of knowledge, a hundred dollars in seed and a little bit of sweat and get $300 worth of groceries out of it right now. That's worth your summer's work in my eyes yeah. every single time, especially if you have young kids and stuff on the go. Um, like money isn't going as far as it used to. So I think when you say like 29 to 39, let's say we're the ones who are feeling the pinch of the money, right? 
Yeah. The younger bunch, they still have their student loans. They're still fucking around, doing whatever they're doing. They have this gig economy that some of us will never figure out. And right. we're stuck in a different dimension, kind of. Like, we were the first ones to have cell phones. We're the only ones who will ever remember what life was like before them. And yep. that's why we're the first ones to put our hands in the dirt. We're in-betweeners. Yeah, we're like... um well, I'm a millennial technically, I guess, but I have a lot more traits of the Gen X generation, I think, than yeah. the millennial one. Um, and then whatever this generation that wanders the streets like cell phone zombies is now, I don't know, but they're here. So I'm try <laughs> yeah, well, no, I mean, like, uh, but yeah, I think there is those people who are feeling the pinch. And like, when I think too, to like when times got tough in history, like when people had like, say, when, when it was war times, people, people grew gardens. The victory and gardens. Yeah, victory gardens. Exactly. That's exactly what they call them. And that's, well, you think about it, like times get tough and you think about like what seeds really cost. You get a pack of seeds for like two bucks and that one seed can produce a plant and that plant produces all kinds of fruit. And in that one fruit, just one fruit, there's like a dozen, 20, you know, seeds or however many seeds there is. Right? Like there's a lot of seeds. I guess the barrier, to entry, the barrier to entry there is, is the knowledge to know like a, um, how to plant that seed, how to get the fruit. Then it's how to make sure the seed becomes viable in that fruit. Cause like mm -hmm. you can't just, you see the fucking meme on the internet of the dude who takes the green pepper from the grocery store. Oh, there's so many seeds I can grow a field of green. You can't. That doesn't work that way because those seeds aren't right. viable yet in that green pepper. The seeds it was plucked early. Yeah, like the, the well, not to mention most of them are blasted with chemicals beyond belief. But at the end of the day, um, a pepper seed isn't viable till that pepper's like pretty fucking gross. Like you're not going to eat the pepper that viable seed comes from. You know what I mean? So right. You know, if you don't know that and if you don't know how to check your seeds under a light box in order to see if they look right when you put them through, you can. And then again, the knowledge past that is how to save the seeds so it's still viable next season. Like there's a giant there's a blog post right there on how to do all that. And, you know, if people aren't going to go find that information or if they don't want that information, it's just a waste of time. Um, a good example is. We did a workshop series last year. No, it wasn't a workshop series. We did buds and suds at a local bar. So we were at a bar with another greenhouse grower in town. We helped people plant and pot up some stuff. And they went home with seeds and they could ask us questions. It was a great time. Um, but I had this woman and she was like probably 55. She comes up to me with a six-inch round pot. And it looks like she's growing grass in it. And she comes up and she goes, dear, what do I do next with my carrots? I said, oh. I said, fuck you, throw them out and start over. Like, <laughs> even a six inch pot full of like overcrowded, like, to, like it's not happening. So she didn't like that response, but that's the truth. She's like, well, it's wasted seed. That's a sin. And I was like, oh, come on. Like, let's be real here. Like you made the mistake, not the seed. The <laughs> oh, seed my God. I heard my grandmother's voice there. That's yeah. a sin, boy. That's a sin. My mother, my grandmother's from Newfoundland. Oh, okay, great. So, so I wonder, uh, do you guys have a lot of, like, you said you're from PEI, right? Do you guys got a lot of the same sort of sayings and stuff? Like, like I hear a bit of the accent. It's a little bit different. Yeah. Our, so 
little touch of the PEI culture. Like, I, I don't know nothing about you guys other than potatoes. Um, okay. Um, PEI culture. We're 20 years too late. Um, we There's a lot of people who are unemployed here <laughs> in the winter. Like, we're a very seasonal province. Yeah, Newfoundland's like that, too. Yeah, it, I'd say we, we draw a lot of similarities to Newfoundland. We just... Our accent is as thick, and we don't really make up as many words as they do. Like, I... <laughs> we're, yeah, they're a little more creative. <laughs> yeah, like I've been to Newfoundland, and they'll say something to you, and you're like, "Yeah, I'm gonna fucking nod and hope they weren't insulting me." I guess I don't know. Like, <laughs> yeah, what was when I was over there? What is it? Battered a large G's out of here, and that's like supposed to be like get the fuck out of here, but it's like, <laughs> yeah. Like, you told me to, like, batter some largies and, like, get them, like, I don't know. Like, I don't know. Well, I, when I went, I, had, I hadn't been uh, back home is what you always call it. So, like, my dad is the new fee, and he, he moved to where my mom was from, Vermilion Bay, this little town in northern Ontario. So, when you go to Newfoundland, it's always going back home. Yeah. So, anyways, I went back home, and I was talking to my cousin, Justin, and I was telling him a story, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, telling the story, and then he says, go on, bye, go on. I'm like, uh, like I thought he was like saying I was full of shit. I didn't know how, like I didn't know how to proceed with the conversation. I'm like I don't know what you mean by that. He's like, no, like like cool story is what I'm saying, kind of, you know. Or like, there was it's like L A apostrophe. It's like Juan La, and they're just like what? It's like yeah. what is that? Ugh, ugh. Yeah, uh, like, it's like well, who's yeah. La and why? Why get <laughs> real name right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and then when you said the 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 Jesus thing, it reminded me of uh, what was it? Round the pond, stuck in the mud, Jesus boy. It was something that my uh, dad's cousin used to say. <laughs> there's one. There's a saying. There's an Irish saying that I really appreciate. So when um, someone's like full of shit and they're just like spewing out garbage, uh, the expression is on your bike. So it's like. <laughs> Like, it, you know, get on your bike and get the fuck out of my house, essentially, because you're full of shit. Yeah. To say that to someone when they don't know it's coming and, like, they're filling you full of shit and you're just like, oh, get on your bike. They're just like, <laughs> I didn't fuck roll. You, <laughs> on your bike. On your bike. Yeah, get on your bike and get the fuck out of here. I don't need whatever you're selling. Just get back on your yeah. bike with castles in your basket and go on home. Yeah. No, but I I, I kind of loved going, uh, like, I haven't been back there in a long time now. I haven't been there since 2012, I think. Wow. And, like, I don't know. Every time I go back there, I'm always struck by, like, how warm the people are there, too. Like, like I don't know if it's, like, the same thing in PEI. Like, people don't have much, but so, like, they seem to be kind of generous and now, mind you, where my dad comes from is a very small town, and it's an isolated, like, old fishing community. Right. So, like, maybe that's a little bit different, too, because I think when you get a little more, like, urban and stuff, you know, times get a little harder and people get a little harder, you know? Yeah, I think the the issue, it's very similar here on PEI. I think the problem is um, it, we got this stereotype of, like, Canada's food island but in reality, like, they're not celebrating food here. They're celebrating lobster and potatoes. And um, the fishing industry is great. The potato industry is what it is. Um, 
but I just wish we could be known for something a little more than Anna Green Gables, lobster and fucking potatoes. You know, like those are Anna Green Gables, the tourist trap, essentially potatoes are monoculture garbage at the root. Like you can't keep growing potatoes on the same sandbar for a hundred years and expect the soil to survive. Like at some point, the soil here is going to die and then the whole industry is going to go away. And then, you know, lobster's great. I don't have anything against fishermen. They work fucking hard for their money. But um, Canada's food island, I guess, is one thing about PEI that I've always found was a little bit of a gripe. Like, I find, I hate that saying a lot. Um, But I don't know. I I love it here. It's small town. There's no big town feel here anywhere. Um, I'm at the point, like, you guys said you wanted to talk about beers tonight. And the reality is, like, I've tried every beer, every craft beer PEI has, every single one of them. And we ran out after two seasons of, you know, individually picking out a different beer. And little things like that start to wear on you a little bit. It starts to feel too small sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure Newfoundland's very much the same, especially some of those little fishing villages and stuff. Um, yeah. And that's, I guess, where Sudbury's probably a little nicer because you guys can kind of disappear a little bit if you need to and do your own thing and not really be bothered. Whereas for me and Dan to get into what we're doing, we had to be ridiculed for two and a half years as crazy fucking people and the whole town, you know, like (laughs) those guys are fucking nuts. And then it's, but how do we book them to do the cooking demo or how do we get in touch with them or whatever? So, um, hard work pays off out here the same as it would anywhere else. Um, Mm -hmm. But you got to take your licks, I guess, because it's a small town and you're going to take them at the end of the day. It's a great big sandbar small town. That's the way it works. No, that, that, that like, um, so like I'm not from Sudbury originally, but you're, you're right in saying that Sudbury does have a lot of, uh, you get the both, the, the best of both worlds. You get like a little bit of a kind of a small town feel, but you have a lot of access to big city. You have a lot of access to like city type amenities, right? So, you kind of got the best of both worlds, but where I used to come from, like in a small town, even, I mean, even like us getting as much involved with like, like thinking about food security and talking about like, you know, like, no food is important. Where does our food come from? All this kind of stuff. A lot of people that like, like we were our friends and all that kind of stuff. Like they're like, they love us and they're like, Oh, that's great. You're doing that. But they don't like get it. Oh, we can go to that man. If you want to like, we one of our biggest things is trying to explain to people what the difference is like they're like well yeah i can go get you know a 16 ounce bag of spinach at the grocery store and pay a dollar less and it's like yeah but like that came from fucking brazil that was basically preserved in a truck to get here to be ripe for the six days in the grocery store we we uh dan's younger brother works at sobeys like that's a grocery store chain i'm sure you guys have something similar up there anyway he called us one day and he said can you guys do anything with bananas and i said uh well i mean we can dry this the outsides and use it for potassium and whatever else we'll just compost no big deal so he shows up with 10 full crate boxes of bananas that wouldn't ripen fast enough at Sobeys, so they put them in the dumpster. And that's the side of the game that the people who are like, well, the the, the grocery store is cheaper and it's the same quality. Well, 
The reality is it's not the same quality. It's cheaper, sure, but it costs a lot of other things in different ways. Like you're talking about something that was probably on a like a plane, train, and an automobile in order to get to that grocery store. And somehow, and then no one thinks back to the very beginning, like, what did that fucking farmer in Brazil get paid for those 16 ounces of spinach? For it to yeah. be still worth money at $7.99 when it gets to Superstore. Yep. He got paid 13 cents. Yep. That, that's essentially like, and I know it's a shitty word to use, but it's slave labor. Yeah. And, you know, well, people, yeah. people don't want to see that. And unfortunately, again, it comes back to the economy. They don't have the ability to make any choices to change it. You know, like they need to save that fucking dollar at the grocery store. Yep. And I can't blame them for telling me these things. I can't. I never get upset at anybody. But then I'll tell them, well, have you ever looked into the difference in nutritional value between homegrown spinach and the grocery store spinach? Or home cultivated eggs versus grocery store eggs? Joel Salatin, he's a farmer famous for the poly farm. Yep. White Oak Pastures? Yeah, creator of the chicken tractor, essentially. Yep. Yep. He did a test with his free-range eggs versus grocery store eggs. The number one nutrient your body needs to repair cells, and in, in repairing cells, it avoids anomalies such as cancer cells, is riboflavin, okay? We need it. Every day we need riboflavin. We're all deficient in it. He tested his eggs versus grocery store eggs, which is our number one source as normal folks of getting riboflavin. He has 10 fucking percent more or 10 times more riboflavin in his eggs than what's in the grocery store. Wow. That probably extrapolates out to damn near everything else that's grown in your garden versus what you can buy in a grocery store. Well, and then think, think about that investment there. Like think about how much money people want to say we want to spend more additionally on healthcare every year. And think about like, so I've heard someone say before, like the amount of money we spend on healthcare now versus how much we used to spend on diet. We used to spend like 30% of our, our house incomes on like diet. Now we spend like 20% or something like that, but we spend way more on healthcare. I see, and you I want see. to think about like how you're saying right there, if you're, if you're getting a healthier egg from a healthier chicken, you're getting an essential nutrient. That's you're getting 10 times more of that nutrient, right? Yeah. So what I'm getting at is like, basically you're, you're going to have healthier food, which makes healthier people, which don't need as much healthcare and all these other costs. Like you're actually saving money kind of in the long run by having healthier people. And then also they're not on SSRIs and other antidepressants and stuff like that because they're pumped full of chemicals and other bullshit. Well, that's the thing too, right? I think if you're going to get into using the word healthcare, I think that word needs to be something that's reevaluated in general. Um, I think it's petrochemical care like they don't give like if you go to the doctor and there's something wrong with you it's a pill or it's a drug it's something it's never a well let's look at your lifestyle let's look at what you're fucking eating every day like yeah there i I read a study once that every single shrimp on planet earth has micro doses of cocaine in it from how much was dumped in the oceans in the 80s jesus christ (laughs) put that into perspective though when you start talking about like how many antibiotics and how much Tylenol people are excreting from their bodies into the sewer systems that are going back into the oceans too. You have, you have animals that have no goddamn right in the world to have antibiotics in them. 
with antibiotics in them right now and you're harvesting them and eating them like the tuna here tuna is a giant industry for about six weeks here on pei you get your license you catch tuna it gets sold we can't eat the fucking tuna in canada because the mercury levels are too high so it goes over to asia because they'll eat it like we can't eat the tuna caught off the shores here it's like well if that's not a problem (laughs) past you know just find someone else who will buy it you know like i um i read a bodybuilder's blog and he's been in europe for the last six weeks eating butter milk he's let his whole diet go he's still working out he is um he's lost seven pounds just from his body not having the additives that are in north american food like we're eating things we don't even know what it is on a daily basis yeah and that's what's making yeah, the processed seed oils the margarine and all that kind of stuff it's 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 a lot of what that stuff is in the preservatives right because even 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 with us too like we want things also that last on the shelf a long time of course things that are natural like but so it's like it's again going back to the dollar thing right I don't want my $5 to spoil on the shelf back home. I yeah. want me to get through eating it, right? I and see. like, because of the, you know, you know what I'm getting at, right? I 100% get you. And I was just going to say there, I, I listened to a professor's TED talk and he was talking about, he was relating the dollar to calories, right? So um, if you only had a dollar to spend at the grocery store and that was your only dollar for food the entire day. Now, mind you, this is an older TED talk. So, a dollar literally can buy you nothing at the dollar store at the grocery store now. But he was making a comparison then of if you went and bought a dollar's worth of vegetables, you're going to get, let's say, an apple. Okay. If you go and buy a dollar's worth of chocolate or junk food, for example, mm. you're going to get a significantly higher caloric value that will keep yep. your body running for longer. And that's yep. the fucking problem fundamentally, right? If I can't survive off good food because I'm broke, I have to survive off shit food because I'm broke. And yep. I'll survive, but I'm going to be sick all the time. Yep. Well, even even for me, like, growing up, too, where, like, both of my parents, I think, grew up where, like, um, you worried about money, right? So, like, when I was growing up, I remember we ate stuff like uh, fish sticks and canned beans. And, like, we ate, like, uh, cheap kind of, like, easy-to-preserve stuff. And then going from just, like, that being a normal diet to, like, Sophia and her family where everything is even just the slight change of just just meat and potatoes and, like, not a whole lot of spice and stuff. But it was all home-cooked stuff. Yeah. It wasn't as much preserved. Now, mind you, my mother now ch- it totally changed her cooking style and stuff like that. Like, it's, it's a whole evolution thing because, I mean – when we were growing up too, and when she was growing up, you didn't know. Like we all, like when I was growing up, margarine was good. Well, margarine was supposed to be better, and then you find out actually no, it's like uh, an industrial lubricant, and you shouldn't eat that. Well, that's um, it. it uh, or is that up for a debate? It, it well, no, it's not up for a debate. What it kind of makes me think of. Do you remember like all the hoopla about how red meat was giving us colon cancer and like? All that I, I can't I can't get behind anyone telling me that when people eat meat it makes them sick. When people have been eating meat, like one of the things that in theory led to us developing the brain capacity that we have today, which led us to have the ability to build cities and all this other stuff, was we learned how to cook meat. 
It gave us access to like an abundance of calories we didn't have access to before and fat, which helped us develop stronger brains and blah, 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 blah. Like so you, you can't tell me that meat's bad for people. Like I, I can get behind that we harvest meat in the wrong way. I can get behind that we do a lot of bad practices, but you can't tell me meat's like bad for you. No, what the problem with meat is, is fucking McDonald's, Wendy's, and Burger King. Don't blame yeah. me and you for how much meat we're fucking eating. How about we blame of the one billion served with a goddamn smile on their face for the yeah. disgusting meat product that they have to roll out in the thousands of pounds daily? Yeah, with sick animals that are like, like, like you don't like the, the the cow I eat. The cow I eat, I know for sure that cow is healthy. The pig I eat, the pig I eat, I know that pig's healthy because I can go to the farm and see it. My pig, my cows are right down the road at the Mennonite farm literally half a kilometer down here and if i want hamburger i'll go knock on the door and get some i can go pet yeah. the damn thing the year before it's done you know so yeah and they're happy it, doing cow shit they're not miserable animals like i, I mean it might be a hippie thing but like when people say like you know you are what you eat i think if you eat a miserable animal you're gonna be a miserable person well it's energy right at the end of the day like we're in this dimension right now and that comes down to ebbs and flows and energy so if that cow has a fucking traumatic life it's not going to produce like good energy as a meat product like your cattle have to have some semblance of enjoyment during their life like yeah they're raised for slaughter but that doesn't mean they have to be treated as such yeah well you like you think about like what kind of food system would you want to live in? Like, if you want to be, like, a real adult about it, I think about, like, you know, we're going to eat meat because meat is, like, a super dense calorie source. The fat is great. It's so much yeah. great. Like, there's, it's great for our hormone. It's, like, there's so many benefits to eating meat. Yeah. Now, if we want to do that as healthy as possible, we want to do that as humane as possible, we have to have certain ethics for growing it. And then, you know, and then you want to look at when you're growing your, your crops, too. How do we grow crops in a way that it doesn't totally take away from the soil and it kind of like, you know, think about this long term. Like we're playing a long term game. I feel like people nowadays like and you see this, too, where people don't want to have families, too. They're thinking within their own lifetime where like if you go back two generations, people thought over 100 year, 200 year periods like they thought like, you know, my kids, my kids, kids, people think now like I'm going to get mine and get out. I'm going to cash out and that's it. Bye. These things are creating a steady need for instant gratification, right? And it's, it's, that's the problem, right? Like having a child is not instant gratification. It's a long fucking grind to see that gratification at the end of it. It's not instant. I don't have children, but Dan has a child. I understand it. I was a kid. My parents struggle. I know what that was about. So, Things like that, like they don't suit people anymore. And then again, it comes down to the economy too, right? Some of these folks, I know right now, if I didn't live where I live, it would be a serious struggle to find somewhere to live where I could afford the life I have and have the farm. Like rents are climbing to an astronomical rate that doesn't meet the wages. And if I was fucking 20 years old right now, man, I'd be terrified. I couldn't imagine caring about another human being. I, I'd be more concerned about feeding myself. Yeah. So I can't blame them in a way, but at the same time, the need for instant, instant gratification and the fact that nobody can see past, you know, this far in front of their face anymore to see the long game, it, it, it troubles me a little bit. I won't lie to you. 
Well, like when I, I think about that a lot lately too. And uh, at work, I, I talked to a younger guy there at work and he tells me about like how, you know, the, the, a lot of kids his age or a lot, I say kids, you know, he's, he's an adult. But I mean, a lot of, a lot of guys his age is young man, right? Yeah. And, and they're, and they're, they, they got, why would they have kids? There's, there's nothing about anything that anyone's saying about the future prospects that tells them they should have kids. And I know that like, Really, when you look at sort of on a long-term scale, the problem we have is actually people haven't had enough kids and there's going to be a bunch of aging old people who need a lot of service and there's no young people to take care of them. And then actually more importantly is that there's not enough people like in our age group that are going to be consumers and investors going into their 40s and 50s because that's when you're supposed to be going into your prime investing years. Yeah. And so that's a real problem. So ironically, we actually, you know, we need we need more people. But well, you can't blame them like you're saying, though, right? Because that's 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 the 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 thing I'm trying to figure out is like, I mean, how do you tell them to have hope and want to invest in the future when I mean, like, it's 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 a it's going to be more of a grind for them even than it is someone in our age group, probably. Well, I, I think what opened my eyes was um, one of my younger nephews um, was talking about his teacher at school was talking to them about retirement <laughs> and how they need to start saving at 15 years old for retirement. That would be the smart age to start saving 15 years old, man. I wanted like beer out the back of somebody's trunk of their car and maybe to have enough gas money for the weekend. And they're telling kids to fucking start re retirement savings plans at 15. Yeah. I'm sure it's a great idea. It's not realistic, though. So that tells me yeah. at 34 <laughs> that, like, there's not going to be very much money left here around soon. Like, if they're t if they're telling kids that young to start getting ready for the end of their life and I am just starting to prepare for the end of mine now, I'm fucked. Like, <laughs> yeah. well, yeah, no, like, well, one of the things they talk about is, like, say the boomers, right? They're a huge generation in comparison to us, right? And the amount of money that we are just, if you go by size, and I mean, there's a lot of argument that basically, like, because like you mentioned being maybe on the tail end of the millennial, um, I don't, like, there is a suggestion that we don't have the economic power to really drive the economy to sort of keep up with the boomer services and then also provide for the upcoming generation, right? It's a big stress because the thing that the boomers kind of had going for them, it was like, post-war there was a lot of abundance the sort of double-edged sort of war thing is that like economies boom after it because a lot of people died and a lot of debts that were kind of go away and all these other sort of economic things that you don't think of they had to totally rebuild europe and then on top of that they had a surplus of um like basically machinery and petroleum which is your fertilizer boom that we get through the 40s and 50s which lead to these huge, massive, giant-scale farms that we have, which leads to the huge population boom we have. Well, yeah, you're right there. The um, the food system, as it, as it sits, starts to get destroyed around the 50s and 60s, right? Because that's when, you know, they the boomers were all starting to happen, and they had so many more mouths to feed that they, they didn't look at it the smart way and say, how can we, at a government level, entice people to start farms like that's one yeah. thing me and dano say all the time to everybody because people call us a garden they call us whatever we call ourselves a farm 
And it's kind of a fuck you to the government in a way, because at the end of the day, they won't let us register as a hobby firm. We can't register as a normal firm because we don't fit their bullshit criteria. When in the reality subject is we're growing almost 8,000 pounds off of almost a quarter of an acre. The potato farming industry at its best pulls in 11,000 pounds of potatoes an acre. So what you're telling me is a nutritionally dense and diverse regenerative sustainable project that can outgrow a fucking commercial potato grower isn't allowed to be called a farm on Prince Edward Island. And you want me to care. Like, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like, I mean, that's pretty strongly stated. It's, it's heavy, man. Like, but at the end of the day, those, I have the numbers to back those receipts up. So I'm not really concerned. Yeah, well, that's, that's, that's the thing I wonder going forward, too, is like... I have to go put our yeah, okay. one to bed, so... <laughs> I'll talk. You duck back out? Yeah, I'll leave, and then maybe I'll come okay. back, maybe not. <laughs> Here, you never know. Yeah, but no, that, that, that makes me think about, like, going forward in the future. Like, I wonder about, like, uh, so the trend I understand in the market when it comes to mass farming right now is they want to move towards uh, AI... Uh, and like uh, data collection and stuff like that. Like they want to turn everything into a data set and a grid, which makes sense. Like if you're a tech guy, like it makes like you see it and the data, like you're like, holy shit, this is like, this is perfect. We can manage everything. We can, all these different variables. But I'm super skeptical when I see like that at scale. And and I'm also like, I don't know, like, to, to me, it makes more sense that we get more people in smaller communities on smaller scale farms doing a lot of stuff to serve different communities. Like, you know, we need like a decentralization of food, not a centralization. I, I agree very highly with that. We need more smaller farms is what we need. Like we need it to be profitable and worthwhile yeah. for folks to start a small one acre farm. Like, I've read stories about farms that are doing 165 person CSA off an acre of market gardening in the style in which me and Dan will grow. That's a lot of people, man, 165 people off an acre of land. You couldn't do that in a commercial standpoint. Like they'll say, well, yeah, you could. Well, sure. You can grow an acre of wheat for 165 people who can't process it and can't do anything with it once you give it to them, you know, like you can't. We've done the production side of it. So a one acre farm that does 165 person CSA for 25 weeks. It exists in North America, in our grow zone. It can be done. And frankly, the excuses are just getting kind of silly in my mind. Like we need AI to do something we've been doing for 100 years. No, we need it to be worthwhile for people to get back into it is what we need to do. Yeah. It's well, that, so that, that, that's another road that I get to too, where like, cause like that's that's the real point that you made right there. It needs to be worthwhile for people to get back into it because this is the thing that I wonder about because I I want people to be more involved in this kind of stuff, but I'm I'm always trying to figure out how do we sell it to them now, like short of like like so basically the way our government's set up now and the way our culture's set up now, it's towards this globalized economy that's based on consumption, right? It's got no real concept of like long-term growth or regeneration or anything like that. It, th- there is some turning of that. There's some. There's some turning of that. There's some investment in that, but it's it, it's 
it still has this central planning sort of uh, vibe to it. And it, it has to kind of boil down to like, you're right, there has to be incentive for it. So like, that's, that's the thing I wonder about is like, how much do you want to get involved with, say, your local governments and different governments on different scales to make sure that you can have this be a thing in the future versus how much do you just take like almost an agorist point of view where it's like, listen, we know it's right as the people. We're going to start going doing stuff. And will you government people will figure it out after. Like, we're just going to do it. Because, like, I feel like there's not a lot of support for it, but I feel like it's the right thing to do. And the people who are doing it, like, I just I, I want them to do it more and, and better. I want, to, I want to help them as much as I can. But I feel like my, my thinking is, like, like legislation-wise and stuff going forward, we see more centralization, not decentralization. I I don't know how to sound say this that sound like I'm wearing my tinfoil hat, but like I don't I don't trust the Canadian government. I guess like I I don't think governments are designed at this point for us to decentralize. They want us tighter. They want us in, in these 15 minute cities with our food shipped into us. They don't want people who know yeah. how to do things. The better consumers. The meme is as accurate as ever. Your grandma survived the Great Depression because her food was local and she knew how to do stuff. People now, there's people now who don't even know what are like, they don't know how to fucking talk on the phone, man. And you're talking about yeah. growing food. Yeah. Like, like, <laughs> no, you're right. I mean, like, I, I, I kind of razz people. Like, I'll, I'll say, like, you know, sports ball, right? Like, everyone's real, real hyped up on the world juniors and sports ball and all that. And, like, I, that's great. I get it. I, it's fun. But, like, also, then, like, people's got no interest. Like, they don't care where their food comes from. They just don't. Bread and circuses, man, right? That's how they kept yeah. everyone at home from knowing the place was falling apart. Bread and circuses. And, yeah. You know, that's that's kind of where we're at as like, sadly, a lot of the population seems to be that way right now. Like they're too caught up in being scared about what's happening in Ukraine and Russia. They're too all yeah. these things, all these factors are occupying their brain. But at the end of the day, if the grocery store closes down, you're dead in three days. Yep. Well, yeah, because like that, that was another thing I heard today that I was thinking about. So like everyone talks about the, the war in Ukraine and Russia. They talk about nuclear and whatever. So what do you do actually that's probably equally as damaging but doesn't end the whole world but kind of ends it you shut off electrical grids well look you don't have nuclear winter right you do like a cyber attack you set you, you shut off all of the internet now no one can do business anymore because like you think about like like i was born in 92 right if you think about what happened between 2000 and 2020 for like all of our businesses going all online and on the cloud like the cloud is like a fucking server farm in some a god, I don't even know what state. Like, I mean, it's wow. just some fucking block of servers. <laughs> it's like an apartment building of computer. Um, they, yeah, it's it's pretty terrifying now. And I think the worst part is, is like some of this generation um, that's currently out there, the ones that are just getting into university, they're just doing all these things now. They're just starting their lives. I, I don't know if it's just me getting older, but... I have, I don't have very much faith in them, I guess. Like some of them. I, I have a mixed bag on that. I go back and forth. I, I think on one hand, I, 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 I hear your retinence because I think 
every every incentive is telling them to do the thing that will lead to their doom but there's some contingent of those kids that are like something something smells weird because like remember how like when we were growing up there was that counterculture thing right like you didn't want to be doing what your parents were doing like what they were doing was just wrong because they were your parents yeah exactly right so like now i think with these younger people like they're they're seeing the millennials and they're seeing the gen xers and they're seeing the boomers I think they're kind of looking at it a little bit, and I think a lot of them are going to go along with the thing, but I, I feel like there is a contingent that's going to fall more in our sort of circle of the Venn diagram. Like, I, I think they're, they're they're getting hip. I, I have hope for it, and I mean, I mean, I tend to be, like, I, I see that as being, like, a more beneficial, like, you know, optimism is sort of better in the long run. Of course, yeah. I, I try to be optimistic, I guess where I always struggle with being optimistic is I'm also very realistic because as you know, once you grow your own food and you see how easily things can go bad and how much knowledge is needed and, you know, a little bit of fucking luck to make that go successfully over the course of a year, it doesn't come overnight. And I just feel like a lot of folks now, they need it to happen right away. Like everything needs to be instant and, you know, unless you're putting in four years worth of work at university to get some IT job, like that's great. If your thing's IT, good for you. But like you need some more life skills than that. You, you know, yeah. Yeah. one stick isn't going to get you through this mess, you know, like, and yep. you know, I think loving your neighbor too. Like I'm not a religious person, but at the end of the day, like nobody knows their fucking neighbors anymore. Nobody talks yeah. to the people in the neighborhoods anymore. We're all, we have a gazillion friends on Facebook, but like three quarters of them don't, wouldn't even speak to you in public, you know? Yep. And it's like, come on, like, is anything real? Like what I know is real is you put seeds in the ground and I can eat them later. And that's what I'm about. Yeah, no, like there's, there's, there's so much you brought up there that, yeah, like that idea that we're living in this sort of pseudo reality. There's this guy, uh, Baudrillard, I haven't read a lot of his stuff, but he's like this French uh, philosopher. And he had this idea that we're living in like um, the simulacrum, I think he called it. Yeah. And the idea was, okay, so the idea is, it's, it's almost like the parallel of the Matrix. And I think the Matrix might be based on this idea to a degree, the movie. So it's the idea that we've started creating so many movies and culture that we've basically created this feedback loop. So the idea is, is like, we think reality is what we make in the movies, but that thing in the movies is actually a representation of reality. And then we start building our reality on this sort of representation we've created in earlier culture, right? So we get basically further and further detached from reality because we're attached to our sort of uh, romanticized view of reality, right? So it's like a runaway kind of feedback loop culture thing. And I feel like we're totally in that, especially when people start talking about like um, augmented reality and virtual reality. I'm like, you understand that, like you have senses that perceive and then when you put a machine on that, that's lesser than. That's not greater than. Yeah. You're having a less than experience. Yeah. The best experience you're going to get is you just out here screaming on this big rock flying around space at millions of miles an hour. Like three inches from your face. Like the yeah, that's as good as it gets. Is right here. But the the thing is, like, I don't know. They're just – it doesn't um, – the sim. What there was – I had an example there, and I think I lost it, but – Oh yeah, no, it was the um, the Star Trek, like the old Star Trek tech that's in there. I think he talks about that at one point with the simulacrum that 
all those things that were in Star Trek that we didn't think were possible, that everyone was like at the time saying, someday we'll have that, someday we'll have that. Well, we're there now. We have all those yep. things. Yep. Minus the spaceship going from galaxy to galaxy, but everything in that spaceship they were using, we have, you know? Yep. So um, I think it was him who was talking about it. I think that's why that um, word rang a bell in my head. I could be wrong, but yeah, I feel very much the same way. We're in this like, we're kind of stuck in like an echo chamber where the content we absorb is forced into reality, whether it should be there or not in one way or another. Yeah. Um, and then here, yeah, here add it, another right layer now. of, of really goop on top of that, right? Well, like add, add something on top of that, right? You also, on top of that, you have um, like, you have like, um, ah, shit. <laughs> ah, people doing that. And then, Ah, Christ. No, I had something and I forgot it. <laughs> no, but I mean, I mean, uh, the, the theme that we're kind of touched on there is uh, like um, the, the other instant, instant gratification thing, like the other people that are also aware of it in the newer generation. That's that's the other thing on selling them is, is the hard work and investing in something that you're not going to see. Like it's like you have to tell them it's like for the, for three years, you're going to fuck this up and do it wrong and feel like an idiot. And yep. then, like, you know, you're going to start to get it. Yeah, and, and then you'll start to feel good about it. Yeah, and that's the same thing. It's like you go plant those peach trees in the backyard and take care of them for five years, and then you're going to have 40 pounds of peaches every year. And they're like, well, like, I want peaches now, so eleven ninety nine at the grocery store sounds like a better idea. But in reality, that isn't the better idea. The better idea is to have your own fucking peach tree and take care of it. Like, <laughs> yeah, no, and and then and then that just that's the thing too. When you think about like how people think, like, oh well, I just have avocados. I have avocados every week. I always have avocados. I have avocados on my toast in the morning. That's what I have for breakfast. And it's like, uh, well, we live in Canada, and I've never seen an avocado tree. I tried growing an avocado in my house one time, and it fucking died because Damn. you can't grow avocados in Canada. Dano has like a six foot tall avocado tree. Like it'll never put out an avocado, I don't think, because it's been GMO'd to hell. So, but he does have like a house plant avocado, I guess you could say. Yeah, uh, well, I guess that's what you could do and you could get. But I mean, like, like I, it, it's the the sad thing is, is like we okay, so we we live in this global economy. We have this rapidly expanded sort of farm thing. The problem I wonder about sometimes too is as we start to scale this back. Like, so there's a lot of countries that are really big right now that have huge populations that without globalism don't exist. And they might exist at half the population. Yeah. So then we start thinking, like, we start scaling back globalism. There might be, like, the real effect where, like, I mean, to be dark, I mean, people might fucking starve. Well, let's be dark then. People are fucking starving right now. And we have globalization. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, but it might, it might be the case that say, I mean, again, this is I get to be, let's be a little darker, you know, 500,000 starving over, you know, a million is better where, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe it's, you know, st I don't know what the actual number is, right? It might be the fact that uh, we still have an ungodly amount of people starving for the amount of people that we are feeding. Yeah. And but then what do you do about that? Right. Cause that's, that's almost like a no win kind of thing. 
Well, I think the reality of the subject is, is a lot of folks have to realize. Um, I was going to bring somebody up, Jolie Ansel. Have you ever heard of her work with with Sun no. stuff like that? Um, she was doing a lot of work with um, the your circadian rhythm in your body and how food affects that, right? So our circadian rhythm changes in the winter because of the sun, right? Due to that change, your there's certain food you can eat during the winter that will fuck your rhythm up. So you start eating a bunch of mangoes in January in Canada, where you're used to having a winter, it's messing with your circadian rhythm every time you eat that tropical fruit because it's bringing different sun energy to your body that your body doesn't want, right? We're designed to slow down, hibernate, and hunker through the winter. We're not supposed to be absorbing a bunch of extra sun energy. Anyway, I'm not a scientist. It's really fucking interesting. But at the no, end but that, the that's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's, that's super interesting, that idea. Like, cause like you're eating the sun kind of in a way. Cause you think about a mango, a mango needs more sun than say a typical whatever we eat in this climate to yeah. grow because of the nature of the plant. Yeah. So and you and then when you think about what a plant is, it's basically harnessing sun energy, converting carbon and stuff in the ground into fruit. Yeah. It, yeah. You're eating. You, yeah. And it, you're, you're because I think about like say like in northern climates, you eat way more fermented stuff, fermented meats, fermented vegetables, all that kind of thing, and you got to think that that has a different effect because like even fermented foods, it affects your gut biome differently, right? And you're going to have a sort. Go ahead. No, uh, I was just going to say in the gut biome, like. I was I was reading something the other day. We have like a countless amounts of bacteria that are supposed to be in our gut. The only issue is in that gut biome is you need to be eating diverse foods in order to keep all those bacteria alive in your gut, right? That's the theory of the gut biome. So some folks, their their food sources have become so regimented and small they're permanently ending certain bacteria in their gut biome because they're not consuming certain things to keep it alive. And when you right. said fermented food, we should be consuming fermented food at least once a week because it's like the superfood for your gut biome. So you think mm -hmm. about some of these people who are, let's say, picky eaters who it's like French fries, chicken nuggets. I hate broccoli, but I'll eat peas. And it's like you continue down that path long enough and other foods are going to start making you ill. Yeah. So. Well, and even I think about a lot of the autoimmune diseases I hear about a lot now too. And like, even I've been thinking about like my son, he's got eczema and my wife does too. And part of that I wonder is like, you know, I wonder if there is like some sort of, if we start like say doing an elimination diet or something like that, like maybe there's something that's a precursor that's uh, enabling the skin to be more irritated or something like that. Right. Cause I have to wonder with some of our food, like, we're, it's, it's like one of these things where, like, um, as I understand it, and I could be wrong, like, but, like, there's certain foods we can tolerate a certain amount of chemicals and that kind of thing, right? It's so like, this is safe, which basically means, like, you can eat this many chemicals, but then they don't accommodate, like, you know, you're also eating this other thing and this other thing and this other thing. And so you're stacking all these, like, chemical loads on top of each other where it's like, yeah, no, the little bit of plastic in this one dish doesn't matter, but then there's also the little bit of plastic in this other dish, and there's a little bit of plastic in your shampoo, and there's a little bit of plastic in your soap, and there's a little bit of plastic in this thing, and then before you know it, like, you're like, oh, yeah, you're eating, like, terminal, Ill, like, levels of plastic, yeah. 
Like you just in the last year, you consumed forty five Lego blocks. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Right. Like if if you're not really paying attention to it, like in the regular person's diet, they're eating like God knows how much plastic. And even the thing about bottled water, like as simple as that is, like bottled water, those shitty little bottles they bottle water in. You leave that in the sun, like it, it breaks down. You're drinking plastic. And then and then you, you add plastic in there. Let's talk about glyphosate then, right? You want to talk mm-hmm. about plastic. Let's talk about straight up fucking poison that's on, you know, in Canada, they just allowed them to put more of it on our crops because it's not that bad, apparently. Bullshit. Well, like you ever you ever hear that famous video? They asked the doctor, right? He says it's perfectly fine for human consumption. It only kills whatever biology. Some reporter in the audience, he says, drink it. Yeah, he won't go near it. The scientist is like, well, there's no another video uh, that's very similar that I seen one time where the doctor did drink it, but he thought that the angle he was on, they wouldn't be able to see him pouring it over his shoulder. <laughs> that's even worse. Because like, I wouldn't fucking drink it, but I'll pretend to. But I'll pretend to in order to get you yeah. to. Yeah. yeah. Well, and like it's one of those things too where. So, like, if, if you want to, like, give the devil his due, right, and you say for, like, our monocrop and whatever it does, like, it fed a lot of fucking people. Like, I mean, you can't you can't say it didn't. Mm-mm. But the problem is, right, is, like, you look long term, you're like, we're going to we're gonna feed all these people and create a bunch of people, and we're going to come to a point where we can't feed them. Well, look at the Dust Belt down in the United States, right? That's what happened there. They monocropped it to death. And there's research going on now. That says the whole reason there's a desert in Africa is because they monocropped it to death. So you start looking at those factors and, you know, monocropping doesn't help the soil. That's a provable fact. Um, Biannual crop rotation followed by millions of pounds of fertilizers and pesticides is doing shit all. So let's be honest with each other. Like, you know, like... The farming practices that are happening, sure, they feed a lot of people, but the long-term effects are going to be bad. And that's that's the bottom line. Like, you can't yeah. keep – every time they fertilize that soil, they're killing something off in it. Every time they monocrop it, they've killed off something off in it. And they say, well, we put it back in because we did soybean. You did GMO soybean that needed another fertilizer and yet another chemical-based pesticide to get through to the point where you could harvest the worthless bean off of it to make soy milk and soy and tofu and all these non-food items that we really shouldn't be eating. There's an interesting book. I can't remember the author, but it's called The End of Food. I read it recently, and he explains that in the last 25 years, the modern tomato has decreased in vitamin A and C by almost 60% while increasing in fiber and sugar content by 200. And that is strictly so that it can survive transport in a fucking truck. So, All right, so I'm, I'm going to put a pin in that for one second because I need yeah. to have a quick quick puff, but then we're going to get into that more. Jordan, I should be honest with you, buddy. My wife's about to come home from work here, and I should go. All right, that's fine. That's fine. I understand that totally. But we should talk again soon. This was fucking great. No, we should totally. No, we. I think we really hit it off. And and like I said, there's a lot of there's a lot. You guys have a lot of information. I'd like to talk to you guys more. It was it was great. And and, and thanks for talking to us. Oh my god, man! It was the best three hours I've had in a long time. No. <laughs> well, yeah, we're two and a half there. It was pretty. That was pretty good. All right, man. I'll let you go though.
Well, yeah, thank you very much. Uh, well, so before I uh, we cut off here too, uh, if if people wants to see what you're doing, they wants to see what's going on, all that kind of stuff, they want to get a hold of your product. How do they do that? Um, we are on all the socials: the Burley Farmer on Instagram, the Burley Farmer on Facebook, and we have our website www.theburleyfarmer.com. Well, perfect. Thank you very much again. It was no great problem. talking to you. Have a good night. You too.